Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash Media. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan. Listen, Moriarty, <laughs> Dagan. No, I don't want to listen. Hey! Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> you had to start with Navi. I had to. I, I mean, that will always remind me of my best friend, Mike Pope, because he does a spot-on impression of Navi. Like, since, listen, you know, like that little, he does it perfectly. He used to call and, like, say that when, would, awesome. when I'd pick up the phone. Well, Dave, how are you, my friend? Good. How's it going in your world? I saw that you went to too many games. Yes. You went to you went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, <laughs> you know you, what? Uh, that place is not in Philadelphia. Everybody thinks that's oh. in Philly. It because it's called the Greater Philadelphia Expo Center. Greater so, Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. It's this yeah. massive, right. sprawling convention grounds with like a million buildings, and there's always a million conventions going on at the same time type of deal. But I think it's that's in cool. Phoenixville slash oaks pa um i always feel bad when people are coming out and they're like oh i think i'll go to the convention i like retro games i've never been to philly and i'm like you're still never going to be in philly (laughs) right it's not even close to philly but yeah dude it was a good time i um good met up with ben our Mm -hmm. pal lsm ben and dustin Mm -hmm. and less our pal dustin less our (laughs) (laughs) just dustin yeah, just us, our pal Ben and Dustin. <laughs> it was so nice to see those dudes, and we met Good. up later in the in the day, the convention, and then we had a little tiny micro LSM meet and greet at cool. a nearby brewery, which was really fun. It was nice for you know, like ten, you know, like ten or twelve dudes showed up, had a beer, some conversation. There was some free to play uh, arcade games in the bar, so we got to play four player turtles. I saw pictures of that. That's very fun, fun. Very nostalgic for you and me. Yeah. So I'm sure it was very nostalgic for you. Your, your position suggested you were playing as Raphael? No, I was Donnie. Now, Donnie. I like Ben that much, and I gave him carte blanche, and he said, Leo, and I got a little ins- inside. I kept it internal, but I got a little upset, but then I said, I Yeah, like no, ben. I know. I, well, you and I always had that same conflict, because that's how I kind of defaulted to Donatello as my secondary You did, too? Guy. Same thing? Yeah, I like, I like Donatello... Yeah, I like the bow staff yeah, and all that and, and his yeah. his intellect. Raphael is awesome in the 
live action movie, but I find him less appealing. And I think he's actually more like that in the newer stuff, as far as I understand. But yeah, dude, dude you got to play fucking Shredder's Revenge if you haven't played oh, that game. Dude, I mean, that I game is wait. That game is bonkers. It's so good. Micah and I played it uh, together. Couch co-op all the way through in one sitting. And who'd you guys uh, use? I I use Leo. She used Raph. Oh, nice. And Good team. And you unlock Casey Jones, which is awesome when you beat the game. That's so cool. That's not a spoiler because there's literally a trailer with him in it, but he's he's like my, as you know, he's one of my absolute favorites. That's your dude, Because I just, I've said it so many times, I don't mean to be redundant, but this, this idea that this dude just puts on an old school hockey mask, takes a golf bag, puts in like a, a cricket bat and like a lacrosse stick and all the shit and then just goes around as a vigilante is the do- is dope. It's I mean, such that's, a great that's idea. That's just objectively awesome. <laughs> you know? Especially in the especially again in the live action movie, which is always going to be my touchstone for a lot of these characters, oh, dude, for, so which good. is strange because there's more characterization in that than there is in the, the cartoons that we grew up with. You know, definitely. Um, I mean, it comes out. Really, I've never read the comics. I never read them. When yeah. they all had like red bandanas and shit. I have no idea. What yeah, that's how that movie is born out of the comic, out of the graphic novel, the initial graphic novel, which is so amazing that they were able to pull that off. That's a fun one. I mean, that's a that movie, that first live action TMNT movie is a conversation unto itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. We did TMNT very early in Knockback. And we, talked we had about no idea that. what the show really was. So we'll do a redux. We accidentally did two pool episodes. So I'm sure we'll do a second <laughs> or third Turtles episode. <laughs> that one, so the, the new Leave pool episode that just went up a few weeks ago is called Pool Redux. And we earnestly recorded it not knowing that we did a pool not episode. Not at all. And that's both of our faults because Dagan su- suggested it. And then I quickly scrolled through. I'm like, did we do this? And then I just scrolled through Spotify and I didn't see it. I, still I think I also know. Googled. I think I Googled knockback pool as well. And it didn't come oh, up. It didn't so even just, come up. I don't think so. Oh, so you did your happens. due diligence there. I well, I still not. wouldn't know. I still would never even realize that. It's so funny. I have no recollection of doing that episode. I mean, neither. We must have recorded it either in L.A. or in Philly because it's from 2019. But or in Bucks County, <laughs> if you want to, since we're being very geographically uh accurate today now Dagan, tell me a little bit more about the show yeah um dustin told me he bought a few things he said he bought final fantasy tactics and final fantasy 9 like a good boy nice on ps1 he did tell me that but uh did you did you pick up anything and did you were well, i'm curious if you were recognized by anyone else i also saw pat country was there so i'm sure you saw him saw and, and some others so, yep i yep. got to see pat um hang out a little bit we were kind of um both uh reminiscing about working on the n64 book uh, commiserating a little bit about how, how difficult out? it was. No, no, it's still uh, it's still whip, still a work in progress. He's struggling with it. He had he ran into a lot of obstacles with this one for his third book, which you would think, you know, the junior effort after the first two would be would go a little smoother. I was like, Pat, you deserve to just ride it out at this point. You shouldn't be this stressed. But it was good to see him. I'll tell you a takeaway that uh, I got from the weekend. That I didn't really realize until I showed up at the at the convention. I've gone to too many games four or five years in a row. I don't think I broke that chain. And I was kind of thinking in the last year or so that retro gaming was sort of taking a little bit. It, it was going down a little bit. The prices were decreasing marginally. Maybe the hype was a little less substantial. And, you know, it wasn't as crazy as it was in, let's say, 2016, 2017, where it was like the peak of its power, I would say. But I went, dude, and the prices were pretty insane. And the turnout was insane. Like the show floor, the sales floor was packed when I got there at three o'clock on a Saturday. And I think doors open at like 11. So this was like four hours into the convention. And, you know, some people show up for the panels. There's a couple of who's there. There was a big YouTuber. Um, this guy, uh, Tico, was there who Graydon recognized as a Fortnite streamer YouTuber. 
So Graydon went with you? No, he didn't go. He oh. almost. We almost got the hooks in him because he. This guy was going to be there. Seven million followers, like one of those dudes. His his line for autographs was yeah. I was gonna say, Dig, that would have sucked for you. It's a good thing didn't go because because when you go to one of those things, everyone knows this. When you go to Comic Con or something like you, uh, if you want to go to one of those big things, that's your day. That's your day. That. You queue up, yeah. so you could get a reasonable, hopefully reasonable spot in line. You only have to wait three hours as opposed to seven hours or something. Yeah, that's it. That's always. I feel bad for people because you do. You have to make your decision based on one or two things you want to do for panels, signings, shows, whatever that type of thing. But the prices were insane, dude. Like I would see an NES cart, like Bible Adventures. I, I saw Bible Adventures <laughs> on the floor. Somebody nice. was asking $20. I just felt in my head, all right, that seems like a reasonable price. And they kind of went yeah, off to the side, that, checked gonna, the I, eBay. I, I, it's $10 shift on eBay. So it seemed like the show floor prices were sometimes twice as much as an eBay asking price. Shipped, maybe even a buy it now. So, and I'm noticing that trend. It seems like the prices are kind of doubling every year. But once you get the rhythm of that specific show, you find like vendors are in the same spots every year. It's like a city. They want to know, they want to know, they want you to know where they're at. And I know now from going four or five years where the reasonable guys are that are going to price things at an economically feasible level and all that kind of thing. So I bought a few things. I was I was hunting for early Nintendo Powers, NES era Nintendo Power magazines. Um, and I got some for a pretty reasonable price. And uh, I have a bunch of those. You, you I have a bunch of those you can have. Yeah, you have a lot well. of those through NES and yeah. SNES, right? Yeah, yeah, you can have. Yeah, I have. Dude, I have boxes of my magazines. Which is awesome. So. I, I love yeah. those. They just really inspire me. And then I picked up a book. I was telling Dustin and Ben. Some indie publisher had some really cool books. He had a book, little paperback book, kind of modeled off of the old black bound NES guidebook, the the original NES guidebook. Mm -hmm. And it was all pictures and blurbs of Nintendo game endings, which I thought was really oh. cool. And they had they had that it is. classified by year. It was really neat. It's a really neat book. Yeah, that's a neat idea. It's fun. So it was good. Yeah, it was nice a good time. It was good. I only got recognized once. On the uh, on the floor, and this, we're talking about thousands of people, man, which doesn't really surprise me. And then nice free-to-play arcade. I promised the boys and uh, the, everybody that showed up for the meet and greet that I would get you out for too many games next year. So you're on the Yeah, hook. I, would, I would love to come. There's no reason why I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go to that. You would enjoy it. Yeah, dude, I was, some people were posting pictures recently. I don't know if it was from Too Many Games or somewhere else where they were buying games, like SNES games and NES games. So I think one of them was like Metal Storm, right? Yeah, sure. Pretty rare game. Good game. But the price, awesome game. The price that they were putting on these things and that people were paying for them, I was like, are you fucking kidding it's me? It's insane. I was thinking about all my games with you and our game collection together, and I said it on Discord. I'm like, I bet you Dagan and I have six figures worth of games. If these, if these prices are accurate, we have a substantial monetary investment in video games because oh, it's unbelievable i mean we have so i gave Dagan all my games we've combined them together i mean that was years ago now and so it's like i, I was thinking i'm like holy fuck the prices this are is, insane and people are it makes paying me, first the of all, prices it's it makes me sad too i mean it is what it is but i i often reflect on the games i sold and how much i sold them for and it's like man what i will never forget getting 20 dollars for final fantasy 3 when i sold it for to get my ps1 because I was like, whoa, really? 20 bucks? Because I was getting five, six, seven, eight dollars. I, I want to kill myself when I think about the games I sold. I sold all my Enix games, all my Squaresoft games, Breath of Fire. Who knew? All the who knew? 
to get a PS1 in Final Fantasy 7. It's that's it what doesn't I, that's really what I make a lot of you see Atari like Atari games aren't generally with you know with some exceptions are not worth a lot. So why that NES era and it has me lamenting like when I got back into the hobby let's say in 2012 I could have bought wacky races for NES for 65 bucks. It's going for $450 now. You know, it's like it has you lamenting for like seven, eight, nine years ago where you should have pulled the trigger. And then those people could have pulled the trigger for a $65 game at Funko Land six, six, seven years prior to that. Let's say in the mid aughts, early aughts for 99 cents. Dude, they were games that Funko wouldn't even take anymore. I mean, we're talking about the dollar games, but then there were the games that they did not take Remember anymore. Remember that? They're like, we, yeah, they were like, we do not want track and field. Like, we do not want balloon fight. Do not bring it in. Not even for a dollar. We're not going to say we have. I, I just I think about it and it makes me sad, but I'm also not a physical games collector. And, and that sa- that sale of all my games to buy a PS1 ended up being a seminal moment in my life because I was very much a Nintendo fan before that. I'm right? going to talk about sure. in this. Showing it was a Nintendo fan after that, of course, too. And then finally they they lost me. But it's a it's I love the physical games grind. And, and it's the same way I feel about G.I. Joe's, which are so expensive now. Whenever anything happens, I'm like, oh, I'll take it like, no, I don't need to have anything. I'm buying it. Right, right. Like, yeah, I'll take it. Take it. Take it. Because what I'm looking for is like cobbling complete versions of these these figures. Like there's just boxes. Oh, you can. Can you see them? Uh, yeah. 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 They're they're back. See them. Yeah. I so this guy actually reached out to me. I should note this, by the way, if you're a, a listener, I, I reiterate this once in a while. I'll buy your G.I. Joe's 1982 to 1994 American, a real American hero figures, vehicles. I'll buy them. So email or DM me and we'll get in touch. <laughs> and I bought by the way, I bought lots from probably five or six of you. Oh, so wow. So this is on. It's on, baby. So a dude email uh, reached out to me a few weeks ago. He's like, dude, I have this collection of G.I. Joe's. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, email me. And then he's like, I just want to give it to you. Here's. I just want to give these to you. I don't really want them anymore. He sent me a picture of, the, of everything he wow. had. I emailed him back. I'm like, are you fucking out of your mind? I'm like, do you have any idea what this is worth? Holy shit. I'm like, I'll give you a thousand dollars for it. I'm not going to take it for free. And what they say to that. And they're like, oh, we really appreciate that. I'm like, yeah, that's great. And, and it's worth a lot more than a thousand dollars if you break it apart. But it's a lot. Right. And I'm not breaking it. Right, apart. Right. I'm, I'm literally keeping it all for myself. Yeah. But right. the but I'm buying them all so that when I have this cobbled together, I want to army build and do I'm going to do that shelf is going to be fucking G.I. Joe up the yin yang back there. And um, <laughs> once I do that, then I'm going to I'm going to put them all back into the market. And by that point, the ones that I don't want anymore, by that point, I've made a great investment. Like I keep telling people, I'll take whatever. Because G.I. Joe's are just going, you can just go on eBay and look. Oh, it's Look at the charts. It's astronomical. Dude, I bought a Storm Shadow complete. Actually, the Snake Eyes, 1985 Snake Eyes, I gave you. I gave you a complete Snake Eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's right there. With with Timber. I think I got that for like 50 bucks. That's not bad. I mean, that would be impossible to find that for $50 today. That's double. And I got a Storm Shooter, like a minty white Storm Shadow for under $100 complete. (sighs) I'm not going to happen anymore. So... Even the shitty figures that like no one wanted at one point are popular now. In fact, they pimp daddy Destro from 1993. Dude, who, who's like, the, rid- yeah, they like actually made a new one of him, which is hysterical. That's like the first acknowledgement ever of that era of G.I. Joe. So, so, uh, yeah, he's an amazing. He's got like the he looks like he looks like a gay pimp. Basically. It's awesome. <laughs> so I made, I made sure to buy that. But yeah, so I'm totally I totally understand, you know, the, the pricing and, and the collecting and that's just the, that's the nature of the game. It is. You know, it's, 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 it's funny. Yeah. And the action figure and toy thing does echo the video game collectible market. And 
it's funny now too watching it evolve because I feel like NES on forward is still popular, but now it's kind of encompassing and engulfing more and more stuff. Like I would say all the way through PlayStation 2 is considered retro now. Um, if not, re- PlayStation 2 is definitely on the outer brink of that and will be soon. Certainly PlayStation 1, certainly GameCube, N64, long time, you know, obviously. Um, Saturn, all that kind of stuff. Dreamcast is kind of in, encompassed in that whole conversation now, too. So it's funny to see it grow, but it's not leaving the other stuff behind. Like, people are still interested in NES. It hasn't surpassed NES and SNES, and it just kind of be- it gets bigger and bigger. It gets larger and larger, uh, which is funny. It's funny to see. I, I literally go and see. I bought specific Sega Genesis games, complete in box, last year at the convention, and went and made a mission of going to visit those games this year. They're double in price. You know, like Shadow Dancer complete in the box. I paid 20 It's 40 now, right? That type of thing. Where it's same thing for Master System, NES, SNES. So, Oh, yeah. Master System, I, I think Master System is going to be pinched the most because there are just the fewest copies of those games. I agree. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. think people understand. I, I have some specific numbers because of my Naughty Dog piece that I wrote back in the history of Naughty Dog back in the day. Rings of Power, the Naughty Dog game, I think there are literally 200,000 copies of it. That's it. Wow. So that was all that was made. And they were saying because EA published their games, they were like, we have no more copies to make. Like, we need so it for funny. Madden. We need it for all the shit. You get 200,000. And when you really think about how many of those games were thrown away, how many of those games are broken, how many of those games just found their way into all these different corners, and now how many of these games are being actively shot? It's it's uh, Peter... Schiff, who's a economist I listen to a lot, he says, and I'm not giving financial advice, but he what he says is <laughs> if you if you want to buy something that's not perishable, you might as well buy it as soon as humanly possible. Because it's only going to go up. It's only going to go price. up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's like kind of his been in his advice with inflation lately, and it's interesting. Cause he's like, Yeah, if like you want to put a fence around your house, you should do it as soon as possible. There's no reason you should wait. Because and, it's only going to get more costly. Right. So of course the collecting where it's all passive money for people yeah it should be anyway i hope not for everyone did you see that thing where there's this a uh, persona 5 like fan magazine that the person like one of the people that worked on it spent t- all twenty five thousand dollars of the money they raised on gotcha stuff from um no. genshin impact no <laughs> what <laughs> oh no why that's more money than super perils of baking is grossed holy shit what the hell but yeah, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm always glad to hear about your uh, your travels with retro games. And, and I'm obviously rooting for you to continue to fill in those collections. And it's fun. It's fun. I, I've been thinking about expanding a little bit. Not I don't want to get too out of G.I. Joe, but playing Shredder's Revenge. Mm. I don't know where my turtles figures are. I don't remember if I sold them. It might they might have been casualties of of a like my all my Marvel and stuff that I had when I was a kid. Yeah. Those were all casualties of of garage sales. You sold them. All. I don't know if I did the same thing with TMNT toys, but I was looking back and I was like, it would be cool to go back in and get some of those. But it's pretty expensive. Good. It's expensive. It's popular. And it's yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're, those are costly. And there was a lot. Yeah. But there were a lot. They did a lot of iterations. There were, well, that was what was so cool about that Playmates generation, dude, was I was telling Micah like, that started in like 87 or something like that. Yeah. And they made the figures for an pretty much an equivalent amount of time that a real American hero ran like more than a decade of the of. And I was totally out by probably 93 or something. Okay. And so 
I, I know that there are like all these characters and I see these toys. I'm like, who, even playing Shredder's Revenge a few times, I'm like, who the fuck is that? I don't. <laughs> Deep cuts. I don't remember this person at all. <laughs> like a vampire woman and shit. I'm like, I don't know what the hell is going on with this, but. But I remember Baxter Stockman, you know, of course. Oh, I remember, of course. You know, yeah, Eastman and Laird, the they had some kind of thing in place where the artists uh, over at their studio, what was it? Not not Eclipse. Um, what was the name of their their whole operation? Oh, Mirage. Mirage. They right. they were entitled to, if they, they could create characters. By the way, I don't know where the fuck I pulled that one out of. That was that good. Was way... I don't know. That All was right, huge. So go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, but yeah. their whole studio, they had their in-house artists. They would kind of give them um, sort of, they would say, come up with a character for a figure for merchandising and you could get a cut of the profits. So that's where a lot of those characters came from. Those artists were just, you know, they were entitled that's to so some, of the, some of the money. So they were like, sure, let's do it. Let's call up with all these that's, ridiculous I mean, that's characters. That's so fun. But of course, Rocksteady and Bebop are still like my, uh, my dudes. I you, love them. You They're just amazing. Them. Gotta have them. Uh, especially uh, Rocksteady. I love Okay, me too. Because his like guts hanging out, and it's, like, so, it's <laughs> such a great image. All right, my friend. Um, today's topic's a big one, a fan voted topic, one I think a long time in coming. Oh, for sure. And had me playing obsessively for the last week, and it's 1998's The Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. Ooh. Now, I gotta say, well, I'm not gonna say anything. We have a lot of input from the audience. I'm gonna let you guys do a lot of talking in this episode. And Nicholas Hardacre has the intro comment here. Daigie says, and remember, of course, you can support us on Patreon to get your stuff in as well. He says to the best brotherhood duo podcast that exist. My time has finally come as a diehard Nintendo fan for 33 years. Now, this game is still my favorite game of all time. I remember being 10 years old that Christmas morning. And am I surprised the N64 and Zelda underneath the Christmas tree? I'll never forget being so blown away with the open world theme, characters, graphics, storytelling and that amazing soundtrack. From the kid that turned into an adult, the amazing temple design and that epic finale of a boss battle. Nothing but The Last of Us Part Two has been able to fill me with tears the way this game moved me. They, and that's one of the weird parts about it, which I want to talk about. Because I don't even know what the game's about. Thank you to the greatest <laughs> brotherhood out there. Much love from Louisiana. Very nice. Thanks for so, kicking it off, Nicholas. Yeah, thank you for writing in. I wanted to say that my connectivity to this game is deep and deeper than I think I ever understood until I started playing it and really sat down and played it again. I would say that there's probably a pantheon of 10 games or so when I was a kid that truly, really meant something to me. Not games that I liked or loved, games that I bought or whatever, but games that really left a mark on me. We're talking about Mega Man 3, Dragon Warrior, the original Legend of Zelda, Final Fantasy 4 and Final Fantasy 6, Symphony of the Night, you know, Metal Gear Solid, games like that, sure. which came out a month after this. And or I got it a month after this. It actually came out the same the same around the same time. I got it for Christmas. And this game is, in my estimation, just as good as people say it is. And I've often gone through life as a gamer questioning my tastes and questioning conventional wisdom and i had a similar revelation with final fantasy 7 a few years ago when i finally played through it again on ps4 and i got the platinum trophy in it and i was like this game's awesome i don't know like what my problem with this game was i think i was annoyed that people were kind of getting involved in role-playing games and it seemed like they were making them three i mean think about wild arms which i'm playing right now on ps5 and think about these games these games came out six months apart wild arms is what i always wanted i never wanted it to ever change that's what I always wanted. Definitely. And when Final Fantasy VII kind of challenged that, it was hard for me to deal with it. So I went back and I revisited that and I kind of dissuaded myself of that. 
I think a similar thing happened here. This game is an unbridled masterpiece. And you know what I think the great thing, Dig, about me kind of revisiting this is how much more I know about video games now than when it came out mm. and how much more I know about video games than the last time I played it. Because the last time I played it was on GameCube in college 20 years ago, not even a little less than that. So that's what I love more about it is I, I think about like, you know, not being let's not even like let's not flood the zone with crazy numbers. Let's say I've played 500 games right since I wrote 130 strategy guides for games after Ocarina of Time came out. Wow. Nonetheless, Holy all of the shit. games we played and all of the stuff that happened after that and all of the preview events I went to and all the people I interviewed and then making my own games and all of that. Wow. So I understand them better. And I look at this game and I'm like, this is an insane, insane game from a relative position of where it came out and what it did. And I'm so happy to have played it again. I don't know that I ever would have, which is weird because I go back to the original Zelda pretty often. Once every few years. Sure. I love it. Sure. It's very easy to pick up and play. You can beat it in a few hours. You can 100% in a few hours if you know what you're doing. Yeah. This game you can't rush through. I know. I think the, sp- the 100% speed runs have it at like four or five hours, which to me is like. That's insane. That's insanity. That's I don't even know how you can insane. possibly do that. I played it like a full time job for the last week. In fact, you gave me two extra days because we were supposed to record a couple of days ago. And I'm like, I don't. I'm, I 100%ed it with an exception, which I'll talk about. So every gold Skatala, every heart piece. Oh, you all the bottles. Yeah, did it all. And really sat and examined and thought about it. And. I look at it, it's like it's like how philosophers probably feel about Plato. It's like you look at this and you're like, this is this is kind of where it started. We know that it kind of started beforehand. You guys gathered around a fire. You made a game like The Legend of Zelda. Good shit. But this you know, this is like Plato begat begotting Aristotle or whatever, you know, <laughs> and so I'm really interested to see what you think of it, what you remember about this game coming out and shit. Dave, there's a picture of me and you and Anjoni's house in 1998 with me wearing an Ocarina of Time shirt. I know that I picture. pre-ordered the Holy game. Holy shit. And it's it's an amazing series of memories I want to get into it. I really want to bring you in because I've been rambling. Uh, what do you think of Ocarina of Time? I'm not even really sure what your history is with this game. So I'm curious. N64 was a weird generation for you, as I remember. Um, I know you had access to it, but you didn't own one. And so at that time, right? Nope. You didn't own one. No. one? Nope. That was that was Ducky's thing. My friend Ducky's right. thing. So, yeah. Talk to me about your memories of this November 1998. A seminal game for the West, by the way, because it came out at the same time. Something that we could have never even believed was possible because we got everything late. And by the way, we would continue to get games late on N64 after this. It was just like this specific game, Majora's Mask as well, and a few others okay. were, were day and date. And that was really fun for us. I remember being in ninth grade and you'd be on forums and people that could translate it or buy them or whatever in Japan would ruin them and kind of get into them and you'd be jealous. And <laughs> That's the beginning of that. That wasn't possible here. So anyway, tell me about your experience with Ocarina. Yeah, I think you and I are going to be launching towards this topic from two different vantage points because I had never played it. And, you know, I have a notoriously adversarial relationship with the N64, which is actually one of the reasons I wanted to work on Pat Contry's third book, the N64 guidebook, after working on the NES guidebook and the SNES guidebook. I wanted to kind of give the N64 book a shot and do some reviews because I kind of wanted to revisit the console and see if I could come to a different conclusion about how I enjoyed the the hardware itself and some of the games. Now, my N64 beginnings 
in the you know the the late 90s my friend my college friend ducky had it in his apartment he was a day one dude he was just a gamer out and out whatever it was nintendo sony sega he had to have it and you know all of his resources went towards getting the games he was a hardcore gamer he was the first person to ever let me play saturn yeah right a, he yeah. had panzer dragoon day yeah one. i remember like, i mean i was always so excited to like be able to fuck around those few times i got to fuck around with the saturn it was fun for me you know, he was the i mean he was so serious about his games and he exposed me to a lot of things that weren't on my radar but my n64 memories with playing the, in those early days of the hardware's release in the u.s was mario 64 and then later we got into golden eye we got into shadows of the empire but that was about it so for some reason this game just escaped me completely although i know ducky was playing this and then not too long after we moved into a house together on cater street in philly so and you know he was that dude who woke up rolled out of bed lit a cigarette and started playing games like games were his he went to bed playing games and everything in between was playing games like he was the gamer if it wasn't watching star trek he was playing some type of video game but i had this thing with the n64 and i guess it was because you know early 3d blocky low poly primitive texturing and the it's pretty bad i mean n64 is pretty bad dude it's Uh, i mean especially in those early days we were kind of rolling out of i think two things 16-bit games were still kind of gaining steam and momentum and how wonderful they look to me especially as like a 2d i'm an animator i'm a 2d type guy and then what they were doing what sega and capcom and other companies were doing in the arcade bitmap animation was blowing up in the late 90s like even though 3d was coming in to replace everything or a lot of things the the look and feel and the technology of 2d gaming was still growing and it was looking amazing i mean think of like street fighter alpha when that came out it was like holy shit like look how beautiful this is dark stalkers all the stuff that snk was doing with neo geo so I was kind of really kind of begrudgingly slowly accepting the N64. And, but I got to tell you, man. And my other thing, the other thing that I come at you with is I loved Zelda. I love the first two NES iterations. They're two, you know, of my favorite games still to this day. Yeah. You and I share an admiration for the second one, which a lot of people don't. I love that game. Me too. I I I just love that game. Me too. And A Link to the Past on SNES is probably, oh, yeah. you know, arguably one of my favorite video games of all time. If not yeah, that would be one of those favorite. seminal games I didn't list. Sure. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then Link's Awakening, for some reason, I completely missed. I wasn't a Game Boy guy. Yeah. And then I was this game, Ocarina of Time, being the fifth, I guess, main Zelda installment in the franchise, completely escaped my my radar but the, the funny thing is i go back into zelda later on like majora's mask i never got all the way through but i've always been fascinated with that game so i will go on youtube and watch retrospectives i'll go and watch speedrun so i'm more familiar with ocarina uh majora's mask but ocarina of time just i never really got familiar with or acquainted with in any way so i was able to go into this game even though it's nearly 25 years old i was able to go into this game raw and just really be surprised and dude I have to tell you, despite everything I said about the the blockiness and the low poly art and the you know the really shitty texture mapping and the jerky animation, I can't believe what an amazing gaming experience this is. Even though games look like The Last of Us Two now, and Horizon and all these wonderful, beautiful graphical, you know, works of wonder, this game it just 
is an amazing experience for gaming. I mean, I just can't believe how beautifully done it is. You forget that you're playing a game 25 years old. And I think that pays it the ultimate compliment. And you, I kind of went into like with my cards close to my chest because I know just in researching it and just knowing retro games, right, that this is considered by many people to be one of the most perfect games of all time, one of the most highly regarded, one of the most critically acclaimed. So you go in with that, again, that feeling of like, all right, let's see what you got. Let's see how good, how good can this possibly be? And not only is it wonderful, I think this game gets better as you get into it. And this is this Definitely. game took me 30, you know, this is a 25 hour game for a lot of people. It took me 35 hours. Minute to minute, I feel like this game just got better and better as you went deeper into it, which is such a wonderful payoff for something that you have to spend time with. You know, at the end of these things, you and I have to sit down and have a conversation about it. Sound smart, funny, charming, you know, come up with different things to say because this game has been talked about to death until people are blue in the face. So we're always tasked with that at the end of this, right? So to actually go in and make that such a pleasurable experience to have to go in and do that and make it like something that you look forward to every night. And I got to really savor it. You know, I got to play it an hour at a time. And then if I felt like you and I have been working on this for a while, even by knockback standards, it was mm. pretty long. So I would go in and actually forget and then go back and say, let me replay that hour, you know? So that was, and, and to do that and not be upset or aggravated and just actually be, make that a positive experience and something that you really savored, something that you could really look forward to, dig, you know, dig your teeth into and... Yeah, dude. So, so fun and wonderful and makes me want to now go in and fill in the rest of my vast Zelda gaps, including, you know, starting again with Majora's Mask and then all the way. I didn't play anything until the Minish Cap. And then I would jump in and out very intermittently, almost almost aggravatingly, you know, like, why why was that my rhythm with Zelda? I don't know. There's really no explanation for it. But now I want to go in and just kind of sew it all up. Well, I think the games became, in my opinion, inconsistent at some time at some point. Like, I really don't like Twilight Princess. That's where that for me oh, is where the, that's that's the one where it starts for me. Where I'm like, I just don't know what you're doing with this anymore. You know, and Wind Waker. I was always a big advocate of Wind Waker. I know I always joke around about the revisionist history. I know I remember I was there. I'm not going to let you guys get away with that. But Link's that's Awakening, I was never actually into very much. I, I, I got stuck this at the same point every time I tried to play it when I was a kid, you know, pre pre-internet because i got it yeah. when it came out i sure. guess that was 93 and the the great kind of silent capcom developed zelda games from 2000 oracle of ages and oracle of seasons those are kind of the stars of the show at that point those game boy color games those are fucking great games good shit but um i want to talk about this from jacob because he brings up nostalgia in the memories and often i talk about dig how some things very very few things are aimed I felt like were aimed at me just for my age. I, br I bring up American Pie a lot as being that came out. That was for you. Your people, your age, you. This is you. Definitely. I felt that way about this game, too. And Jacob writes in and says, I think it is safe to say I've given this game a playthrough once a year for the past 15 years. Every time I return to it, either on the 3DS or on my original N64 cart. By the way, how did you play it on N64? I play. I don't have an N64 hooked up, so I played it on emulator. Oh, okay, I played it yeah. on Switch. The, the Oh, you did? Okay. The uh, okay. up-res version of it? Okay, so where was I? Ba -ba 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 -ba. 
Uh, oh, I still feel the warmth and comfort of the summer break. All right, so here's where it gets. I still feel the warmth and comfort of that summer break, staying up as late as I could. So you must be talking about maybe 99. Struggling yeah. to escape the water temple or exploring Hyrule Field with Epona. So many of the songs are etched into my mind and instantly transport me back to my childhood room. Eyes glued to my crappy little CRT. It's no surprise <laughs> the game is able to elicit such memories given the themes at the heart of the story. If either of your histories go as far back with the game, did this recent playthrough bring any of the same emotions or feelings? Or has the game simply lost too much of its luster over the decades? No, I think quite the opposite, Jacob. I think I think I thought it lost its luster, which has happened to me before on this show where I'm like, I think I've, I think this isn't as good as you as it, it, we remember. And then I go back and I'm I'm transported to Mike Pope's basement. It's so November good. 1998. We were obsessed with this game. And I texted him and he was saying, you know, how nice it was to hear. I was like, this game will always remind me of you like from the fucking word get go. We were we loved this game. We played it together. We we obsessed over it one of us holding a strategy guide one of us on a laptop you know one of us playing <laughs> you know trying out all these bonkers secrets and trying to do the, this stuff with the game trying to find all the heart pieces and the gold skeletons and yes i feel like ninth grade colin november 1998 that's the audience for this game i feel like it doesn't i feel like it hit it can hit with anyone it hit with younger people it hit with older people of course uncle john loved this game but there's something about being a young high schooler that I think is the, the pocket for this game. And so, yeah, it's deeply nostalgic. And I think it's deeply nostalgic for Nintendo 64 fans because there aren't that many of those touchstones for for players of the console. I would contend that there are maybe 20 games on the N64 that are exceptional games. That's not very many when you consider. That really isn't. But I think that that's about right. You know, when you think about all and there's there's good shit. I mean, Mario, the Mario Mario Golf on uh, on N64 is exceptional. It's a, a, a fucking classic game. Of course, you brought up Goldeneye, Jet Force Gemini and Banjo-Kazooie. I mean, all there. But you'll get to 20 and you'll be hard pressed to name very many more. I agree with you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think Ocarina of Time has that or Ocarina of Time, which I think is how you properly say it. Which way do you go? Which way? I go Ocarina because that's how I've always said it in my mind. You You have to remember everyone out there. Dagan and I come from an era where we had no idea what anyone was saying. I remember seeing the wizard where I think they say Ninja Gaiden. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. The dude says that. What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And that didn't affect us at all. I was still calling it Ninja Gaiden for 15 more years. I didn't start (laughs) saying Mario until I started working at IGN. So it's amazing. It's true. So Ocarina of Time. I think the same thing with um, Chocobo or I used to think call it Chocobo or something like that. You know, something like that. Because <laughs> it's like, I don't know. You just see it. I'm not I don't I've never heard anyone say it in my life. We didn't have VO. But I really think about that fall. And it's just so deeply nostalgic. Twenty four years ago, ninth grade. The fall, you know, just having moved back to Long Island full time with dad, reintegrating myself in that area kind of scared, kind of anxious. And I feel like I found a lot of comfort with this game. I I don't know why I got away from that notion that this game is exceptional. I think I just, first of all, I'm a big stan of Majora's Mask. And, and I know a lot of long time fans of mine know that I love Majora's Mask. That I think Majora's jam. Mask is easily the best Zelda game. And that they made it in like a year and a half is hysterical because it's so deep and so good. And it, it it's a sequel to Ocarina of Time. So, you know, Termina's in parallel to to Hyrule during this era. It takes place months afterwards. So you should play one and then the other. I mean, not that it's necessary. 
And they I say deep... that those bells chime in the ending of Ocarina is directly referring to Majora's Mask, right? Because it was already in development. Do they? I think I heard that in a retrospective. That might, I don't know. I th- that could be true. I don't know exactly when how they overlap with each other or what. Oh, the yeah, plan with was. the plan, how the planning went. I think with Zelda, what I've realized, Dig, and this is for another time, but there's all the Zelda line- like history and, but I think a lot of it is retcon. Like okay. I don't, I really don't believe that their intention. I was reading something about how in Wind Waker, no, it it might it was either in Twilight Princess or Wind Waker. You fight like a a Dark Link who is Link from Ocarina of Time. And I I'm heard like, this There's too. There's no way that I you heard meant- this too. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, come on, it's so it, complicated that right. some of it, the timelines have it has to be retconned. It's like Castlevania to a lesser that? degree. Right, right. It's right, like exactly. you d- definitely didn't plan this out. Like all these <laughs> blah, 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 on the timeline. You look at Castlevania's timeline and it's like, come on, man. It's fun. <laughs> it's just fun. But these years are arbitrary. It doesn't right. matter. Right. Exactly. Only I care. Like that's literally <laughs> like I only I care who is related to who in Castlevania. So I, I wanted to bring that up that the nostalgia for me is is really deep. And I think that sometimes you have to let reality crack and permeate that nostalgia to realize that no this is objectively good this isn't <laughs> deke gi joe right that's not very good it's it's not like the source of deep well nostalgia for you where you just long for those days of yore that have been ripped away from you as the older you get right or something dark like that it's like no this is a game that solved all of the problems of its era and it did it well. This is a 10, right? This is like a pretty much flawless game. I think there are a couple of problems with it gameplay wise. But even like you said, even mechanically, we were talking about Metal Gear Solid came out the same time on PS1. That game plays way worse than than Zelda does. Great point. And the, the problem for me was just that I was having a hard time playing it with the the um, the pro controller on Switch. Without C buttons, it becomes the C stick. It's That's very gotta awkward. That's got to be hard. That, yeah. I don't even know how you did that. And so you just you just have to do your best. And that's what I was going to say was I so I 100 percent of the game with two exceptions. I didn't get the ice arrows because I was just running out of patience at the end of the game. I'm like, I just okay. need to be done with this game. I don't know if you did that, but no, I didn't. I you didn't, have to like I go didn't know how percent like, it, though. OK, yeah, you have to go and go into the Gerudo or Gerudo. How, I don't know how to even say that and go and um, do like a secret dungeon. And it's just annoying. I was like, I, I just want to be done with this. And the other thing I didn't do is I didn't get the 50 arrow upgrade. So I only had the 40 arrow upgrade because you have okay. to do the, the horseback riding and get like a perfect score. And I'm like, I, that was where the controller came in where I was like, I could do this on an N64 controller and feather it beautifully. Yeah. That's 16 directions like a, or whatever they have. That's hard. but not, yeah, not on. So it was a little bit of a challenge using the Z to, you know, Z targeting and all that. But I thought it held up really well. And I, I just wanted to acknowledge that, yeah, there is deep well nostalgia for me with this game. I remember getting it. I remember it very well. Like I said, I had I pre-ordered it. I had the T-shirt. I felt so. Those are my favorite T-shirts. I love that. I don't even know what happened to that shirt. That's a good. The logo is just so awesome for mm-hmm. this one in particular. You know what, Kyle? It's funny that you say that that nostalgia of yours is really palpable and relatable to me. And it reminds me, you got freshly minted 15 year old Kyle in 1998, right? Yep. That was the same age for me. 14 actually 14 years old sorry 14 right so that right you were 14 so 14 15 is for me when the nes came out so that was kind of my resurgence or reintroduction to home video gaming consoles that nostalgia 
really kind of want, you know, everything being about that playing by the glow of that CRT TV at night, that atmosphere of the game sort of transcending into just the atmosphere of your room at night or the basement where we were playing said console. So it's really relatable to me. I think it probably gives you the same feels as the NES did for me back then at that same age where you're still and you're still it reminds me of the game too you know this whole lesson or theme of childhood and growing up and everything like that you're still kind of in that age where you could kind of be a kid reminds me of Lilia you know I have a 15 year old daughter right now and you're kind of floating somewhere between adulthood and childhood but it's, it's super everything you're saying is so relatable to me even though I wasn't nostalgic about the N64 it was a couple of consoles earlier but I think it's a very, and maybe with the first Zelda game, for instance, but it's a very similar thing. And, uh, you know, just super, the, the, it's so funny for me, like this game, the atmosphere, everything it does, it's funny, it's a little bit eerie, like a good Zelda game mm-hmm. is, it's fun, there's a fair amount of challenge, but it's not, you know, something that's restrictive or keeping you from wanting to play or getting too overly frustrating. The speed everything moves in you know the way link walks or rolls or dodges or climbs a ladder like it's work but it's not mundane it's not monotonous everything this game does the other fascinating thing is for me before i forget to say it it's amazing for me how they evolve a zelda game five games into the franchise right five games into the into this ip a very important ip for them and nintendo they're evolving it to a new look they're evolving it to 3D. It's still a fucking Zelda game. It feels so much. How does a game that looks like this in 1998 feel <laughs> so much like a game that came out in 1986? It just feels like you're looking at it from a different angle. It's so weird. It's 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 a masterwork of game design. And just consistency. Not only that, it's wonderful and it's evolved and they're kind of changing with the times and, you know... We all know the stories, right? It was it was initially developed for their 64DD, the Nintendo Disk System that was doomed to fail, and Nintendo sticking with cartridges while everybody else is going to CD, which which I have to say is a reason for it to be nostalgic about the N64 alone, which is something that I always missed until very recently. I was like, holy yep. shit, you know, Nintendo stuck with carts, and now we're so nostalgic about carts. I'm looking at my NES shelf. That that's another that's just another fascinating part of the conversation. Yeah, it's but you know, I'm sorry, good. No, go yeah, but that way, I mean, that's really for me. That's another thing. It's just not how wonderful this game is, and Nintendo delving into 3D Zelda. And now we think of Breath of the Wild and Breath of the Wild Two supposedly coming out this year, and how far it's come, but still making it feel like a Zelda game. They do the same thing with their Mario games. You know what I mean? How does how does Mario One? Still, you know, some people might argue with this. Feel Mario, no, Mario Odyssey might be a bad example, but like Mario Galaxy, oh, right? Yeah. It still feels like a Mario Ooh, game. So good, yeah. I don't How like Odyssey. Odyssey, I wasn't into. It didn't. It, it just didn't. I went. That's the last game I went into a store and bought in person Odyssey. in 2017. Odyssey, yeah. Oh wow. And yeah, uh, God, that was 2017, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I wanted it so bad, and then I was like, oh God, it's just so boring. I don't, it's I don't different. Know, but, because I missing. love Galaxy. I agree. Galaxy was oh my god. Oh, Galaxy dude, so is good. so good. Has no business being so good, especially on that <laughs> console. But yeah, they really made this thing work on Nintendo 64. It's interesting because I, what I was going to say when I, I didn't mean to interrupt you before, but what I was going to say was oh, I'm a little less nostalgic about cartridges because while there's no doubt that that 
that connection with Nintendo is real. They were doing it for all the wrong reasons. They wanted control of manufacture. They wanted to make as much money as possible. They wanted to jack up the prices of the game so that they had justification for selling them for more. Right. And then they would say things like, oh, there are no load times. It's like, well, who gives a shit if there are no load times? You have fucking 32 megs of, of memory in your console. There, there's nothing to load. You know? Meanwhile, a disc can hold 500 megabytes or something like that. And right. even games like Final Fantasy VII spawned three or four discs, depending on the game you were playing. So it was hard for me to be nostalgic about that where I was like, man, what would you have done if you just bit the bullet? That's a good point. And did what you should have done. You know, how great would have these games been? But right. they would have had a lot of times. There would have been other quirks that might have. It's true. You might have had the door effect from Resident Evil where you're just tired of seeing this thing. But I just wanted to bring that up <laughs> that I'm less nostalgic about it. I mean, I think we're all nostalgic about it because it's Nintendo. But I don't know sure. that it was necessarily the charming move. And then when they went to mini discs with GameCube, I was like, come on, guys. Like, that's right. What are you doing? That you was crazy. Weird. They probably cost themselves, I would say, 50 percent of their sales by doing that, because if it was a DVD player, people would have been more open to buying it instead of a PS2. That was a huge mistake. But they still sold 24 million of them. I had one. I had two, actually. OK, I want to ask you this, Dig. Yeah, because you're talking about this. What is the game about? GameSimp mm. wrote in and said, hey, dad and uncle, the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time was the game that transformed me into a hardcore gamer. In other words, it was the first linear story based game that I played to completion. And it showed me that these types of games could invoke emotions aside from the feeling of fun elicited by games like Mario. For example, I remember the melancholy feeling of having your entire adventure lost to time after transforming back to childlike at the end of the game. That ending is <laughs> really sad. So I don't, sad. I don't think I remembered it at the time. It made me realize that the adventure Link just completely just completed only exists now in his head because everyone else remains oblivious to his heroic deeds within this timeline. Looking back, this elicits deeper philosophical questions of what is real or not. Can we even consider Link's adventure as something that happened if his legacy only lives on within his head? Even though I played the game for the first time 13 years after its initial release. So what is that? 2011. Yeah. It forever changed my trajectory and involvement with video games through powerful moments like this. I'm curious, Dave, like, what do you make of the narrative? I, I, this has been always the point of both confusion and contention for me with Zelda is that is confusion in that I never know what the games are about. Like, I never really understand <laughs> why I'm playing them. In fact, I think Zelda 2 is probably the clearest, which is weird because you're constantly starting in front of Zelda's body in a coma, which I think is awesome. So I you're love like that. constant reminder. Of what right. You're doing. I love that. It's so dark when you think about it. It's so good. It's a great point. And so I always felt like you had more context in that game than all the other ones. And I think that's part of the fun for me. But I also know I'm not the deepest thinker with some of this stuff. So that's why when I think about like the Zelda journals and all these things, I think I bought you one of those books actually about Zelda, like where you get into the nitty gritty of the timelines and the stories and the intent. Yeah. I wonder what you think Ocarina of Time as a standalone product is all about. I think some people look at it as a. As somewhat of an evolution of Link to the Past, and we will talk to that about that, too, but I am with more control perhaps over your time travel, but I am curious what you make of the game's narrative. If you even think there is one. Yeah. You know what? I think it's unfair for people that pay attention to video games like us, because I think we get clouded and confused by all this timeline conversation. For me, I think the whole thing started with probably James Rolfe's video, AVGN video about the Zelda timeline and how confusing it was. And of course it's, done in his cadence and his tone with that kind of a jokey thing but right. a lot of it kind of hit home in what he says in the video because 
it is confusing. And then only later on did I realize that there are actually separate Zelda timelines and not being a super fan and being kind of a sideline fan of Zelda and not really being, you know, not being paying attention to it on a daily basis, for instance. But, you know, I think there are people that are super hardcore and like trying to figure this thing out and listed and what were Miyamoto's intentions and how much of this is real and how much of it is kind of faked and how much of it is perceived. But I think this game, if you just look at Ocarina of Time by itself, I think this game is just sort of a battle of good versus evil and trying to kind of suss out and defeat this mystical evil that turns into a more palpable evil as the game evolves. And it's not even necessarily a rescue mission. It's just one boy out to save the world. And then you kind of hitch that to the themes of childhood and adulthood slash growing up. And maybe the takeaway with that whole thing is the the positives of being a child versus the positives of growing up or being an adult. You know, what are the benefits of both things? So those are my two big takeaways, but I do understand your confusion and how misty and cloudy the whole thing could be because even in this standalone story, I think there's so many characters when you get down to Zelda and Link and the various people that you run up against and the sages and Ganon and what his origins are and everything like that. I I came away from this wanting to learn more about Ganon. And I find even going down that rabbit hole is kind of confusing because Well, cuz Ganondorf and Ganon are two different two different things. Right? Yeah. So Ganondorf is like working on his behalf right. of like this greater pig-like spirit that That's Ganon, what it know. seems like to me. Yeah. You know, and and who knows? Maybe And I know, love when he that's... falls through time, by the way, he falls into the white and he's like, I will, I will like get your progenitors basically, which is yeah, a really awesome ending. I don't remember that at all. So and good. he just falls into oblivion. That whole it's, thing is so, yeah, he's sealed again in the, in the evil realm and threatens them even as he's falling down there and basically to take revenge, vengeance on their descendants. It's so good. And I think, but I think at the end of the day, it's enough, like, and maybe it's our generation because we've sat with this for so long, but Link is just like this iconic hero, this mute protagonist. And Ganon is this ever-returning, seemingly unstoppable evil. He's interesting. But I think a lot of and we and Zelda is the the princess who has, you know, the magical powers and the wisdom and everything like that. And sometimes she's the damsel in distress, and sometimes she's a more powerful part of the protagonist circle. But I think not knowing so much about these characters and Nintendo leaving it kind of obtuse is part of the fascination with it. You know, it's not a more uh, fleshed out character like you would get in like, let's say final final fantasy, final fantasy seven, Sephiroth, cloud Barrett, you know, their origins, you know what they're fighting for, you know, where they come from, you know, what their grudges are against each other. You know what they're, you know, what vengeance they're out for, or what they're out to protect or save. With Zelda, it's a little more, you know, it's just a little more, sometimes it seems a little more um, overly simple, like it's just a, a tale about good and evil and a brave knight versus an evil dragon and there's a princess, the life of a princess hovering in the middle. And sometimes it feels like that's the wise choice because it makes us wanting, it leaves us wanting more. It leaves us having these conversations. One thing I do enjoy about 
the story regardless of kind of the nebulousnesses of it or perhaps our just ignorance on it great more greatly because as i say i don't like to back when we used to start doing knockback i used to do a lot more research and stuff and i feel like that paints my opinion like i just want to go in and just tell you what i think about it what i don't you care think? about it. yeah like right. it, i don't, don't know that i care so much about the context or if i do i'm going to go look at it afterwards that's what i've been really patiently trying to do with game of thrones for instance is i want to read all of the extraneous shit the novellas and and the the works of compilations and and world building all that stuff but i gotta be patient right so sure it's i'm kind of in a similar position with zelda where i'm intrigued but i don't necessarily want to spoil it for myself because there are a few things i still need to play and kind of figure out but what i really love about it is it seems like everything in it is intentional even if there's not an overarching plot that it could be like an allusion to something i don't know childhood lost childhood it could be something else right some other deep fictional device that is trying to elicit a certain feeling however i still feel like every component of it exists and none of it feels superfluous and none of it feels needless every character interaction every person you meet is different they have something different to say or they have a different desire for you there are all these mysteries abound and things to find and i love its restraint now, I don't think they had much of a choice. I mean, the fogginess in the game alone, which they really lift in the Switch version. They, the Switch version runs at like four times the resolution or something. Mm. You know, it's like, so it looks pretty good. And I wish I played it on N64 because I was like, wow, this doesn't look that bad. I actually had to watch a side by side video to remind myself of actually how bad Zelda looks in a lot of ways <laughs> for, for that era. But it doesn't so much look bad when they do anti-aliasing and up it and all that. But I love how it's restrained because today we want big games. This is actually the problem I want. I have with Zelda and we'll talk about it towards the end and why I'm such a I'm, I, breath of the wild. Just, I was just so disappointed in it is because Zelda always represented this thing where it's like, this is what it is. Here's a world like a small, not even a world. It's just this weird place. And there are just some locations that you go to over and over again, a town like Kakariko village or Hyrule castle or Zora's domain. And you kind of, backtrack over this this hub world and it's interesting i know that they were originally not sure they would even be able to do the high rule field and that they might have had to have a more mario like hub world which is fascinating and they and they overcame that and so like it looks it feels like it, it stretches the n64 to its limits in fact it really does because majora's mask requires the four meg expansion to even play so they were really bringing this thing up to the very edge of what the n64 is capable That's of so cool. and so even though i'm not entirely sure what they're trying to say I feel like it says what it needs to say and that no interaction kind of overstays its welcome. There are a few times where there are a few things I don't like about the game that I think are notable, but don't really detract from it. I hate how players are. You're constantly asked if you want to hear something again, because I feel like it's, it's always giving you a hint as to what is important and what's not right. I, when you're buying things and you have to go through the scrolling of the text, even when you die at the end of the game and you have to go all the way back, back through all the cutscenes and stuff, because I died a couple times at the end. So, which is, which is hysterical because I was like max, max powered. I'm just really bad at games. <laughs> so I, that's what I love about it is that even though I feel like I'm missing that tendril, like you said, of, of story, Cloud and Sephiroth and Shinra. And, right. I don't know that you're really missing it. I just don't know that it's there at all. And that's what I'm most interested in with, with Zelda is I think it could be like a one-off story. And I know it's inspired by Miyamoto's childhood. And I know how whimsical and, and interesting he is. But I also think he doesn't get too deep i think he's a game designer first and foremost and he's all about games as a, a, a 
Pikmin. You know, like sure, it's not some deep fucking story about Olimar. It's Pikmin. Yeah, you know, it's that's what it is. And so I I dig it, even though I don't know what what his intent really was and like how much thought they really put into the world that it that it comes through like that, I think, is a sign of good game design because nothing feels too big. And I'm so bummed by bigger is better. The bigger is better mantra. I don't believe in it. I just simply don't believe in it. And I think there are no Zelda games anymore, as far as I'm concerned. Not not Zelda, certainly not doing Zelda games anymore. So that's what I love about it. I love the, the dungeon structure and all the rest. But this, this brings in my next question, Dagan. It's from Daniel Rivas, who says, Ocarina was a weird one for me. When A Link to the Past is my favorite video game of all time, I can't help but just see Ocarina of Time for what it is. It's A Link to the Past, but in 3D. I also attributed their choice to play it safe if I wanted to survive the tra- in surviving the transition to 3D space successfully. I think Ocarina of Time is fine. Epona, the Ocarina usage, etc. But it wants to be A Link to the Past so bad. There is a definite carryover between those two games. They function pretty much the same. I mean, you have your three, you have your introduction. So right. the link to the past introduction in the castle, one of the great introductions of all times, raining, it's dark, you get so woken good. up, it's so good. And then you have the three dungeons you have to take linearly, right? As you get different items. Then you're transported into the dark world. You have a little conflict, right. you get transported to the dark world. You do the first dungeon, but then you can actually go out of order and do the dungeons in, in a lot of different orders, which you really can't do in this game. But otherwise, they are the same. You start Ocarina of Time in the village. You go into the Lost Woods. Then you go into the three different dungeons. Then you have a little bit of a conflict. Then you're you, you're not brought to the dark world. You're brought to the future. Right. It's the same thing. The dark world is the future. Right. In Link to the Past, as far as I understood it, it's like a fucked up future. You're trying to go and fix it. Very Terminator like. So it definitely I don't know until I really sat and thought about it recently that I saw the parallels between them. They really are very similar. It's actually similar to what I was saying about a link between worlds when that came to 3DS, I was disappointed in it because I was like, this is cool, but it's just a link to the past. We already have a link to the past. Like we don't need another link to the past. So I don't know that they're that closely connected, but there certainly is a system that is decidedly Zelda. And this is, I would argue the fourth of the five Zelda games in that order so far that stuck to it in terms of dungeons and kind of searching around Two didn't do it. No, six didn't do it with Majora's Mask, but then Wind Waker seven did did do it. If you want to even call that seven, that would more like be nine because of Oracles and Ages and Oracles of season. So right. I'm curious what you think about the connection of Link to the Past and if you think it's a better game or not, because that's where I kind of. I still think Link to the Past is better, but I also feel like there's a whole nother nostalgic muscle for me with that game. That's like a whole nother thing. So, Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about its comparison to that seminal super nintendo game yeah that 16-bit nostalgia is pretty powerful for me but i again i mean that's a that it's a great point there are very close ties the light world and the dark world are very similar to the present and the future mechanic where you have two different things what i loved about ocarina was that you know link has different abilities and skill sets as an older man let's say a 17 year old versus 10 year old link which I thought was really a cool way to do it. But you can see that maybe they thought they had something there, and obviously they did have something there, and they could carry it over and change it just enough where, again, it's just as clever as, you know, what you were just saying about the substance. Like, it's very cleverly balanced to have so much substance, enough substance in a game where you pique the curiosity of, let's say, an older player but enough simplicity to be accessible to a younger player and have, if not having that mass appeal, then at least having max appeal. 
as a result of that. You know, you kind of include everybody. It's all inclusive. And I think it's the same thing. A, a little bit of a, if it's not broken, don't fix it thing. But also just changing it enough from this highly vaunted 16-bit game and then coming back, you know, coming into this 3D poly, you know, polygon world of a, a different type of Zelda now. And evolving it just enough. Now, which one do I think is better? I mean, I think Link to the Past, they're very similar. Even in atmosphere and mm -hmm. the way they really develop a world that seems very realistic and seems very immersive with the effects. And, you know, even in this game, you have everything. I mean, by the time Link to the Past was developed by Nintendo... They were experts to develop 16-bit games. Like they were at the top of their game. They knew exactly what to do. They knew how to squeeze every last drop of juice out of the Super Nintendo, right? When they came into this, it was a little different because, you know, the N64 was new. They were new to this. They were they were changing things up in this poly, you know, this polygonal world. But what I love about it is that even 25 years on almost, it's still immersive. You have you know, whether it's the sound effects of the thunder or the rain or the squawking chickens or the way the, the, the sounds of the water or the sounds of Link's footsteps on the different types of terrain, they did a magnificent job of making it. I feel like it was pretty damn good for its time. And you said you, you brought up things like Metal Gear Solid and what they were doing with PlayStation, Wild Arms. Final Fantasy VII came a year earlier, you know, not even a whole year earlier. So, but still, I feel like it was a proper step into this world for them. And it's amazing. Like, I could think of it from a 1990... I would really be sold on it if I immersed myself in this game in 1998. Playing it in 2022 and still feeling that immersed is just something... That's just remarkable to me. And I think it's because of the storytelling, the cinematic nature of the way they use the camera, the dialogue, the characters, just the overall presentation of this thing. It's so thoughtful and so thought out, you know, to me that I think it's for someone who loves a link to the past as much as I do. I think this game comes pretty close. I, w I And I'm surprised by that. I'm surprised I like it that much. I don't like game scores, but I mean, they're both tens in my mind i mean i i just think indisputably they're both just amazing exceptional games i think one goes into the other because when you look at Link's awakening that is a really different game i mean it, it has the same structure but it's totally whimsical and it takes place on an island everything's a little different right this game more parallels link to the past which more parallels zelda almost like they're going every other game like legend of zelda to link to the past to ocarina of time to wind waker and then after that i don't i don't have any confidence in my zelda knowledge really at all but I want to ask you, we've talk, talked a lot about the atmosphere, so let's get deeper into it. Max Cannon wrote in. Yo, Max. He said, hey guys, Ocarina of Time is my definite favorite game of all time, and I feel fortunate to have lived when this game was a new release. It's one of those clear games where there is a before and after for the medium, and even the things I prefer about Majora's Mask wouldn't have happened without a, such a serious success of Ocarina. The atmosphere swings so well between the whimsical feel of something like The Lost Woods to the sinister horror of the bottom of the well. In fact, I feel like the simplicity of the bosses in the game are bolstered by an incredible atmosphere. There is a horror element to this and Majora's Mask that made the game so great. And I unfortunately think Nintendo won't be able to go effectively down this road in the near future. What are your favorite atmospheric moments from the game? We talked a lot about atmosphere, and I think that that's what the game kind of runs through. Yeah, I think a lot of the atmosphere runs through the soundtrack as well. And we'll talk about that more specifically, obviously. But 
I love the moments of learning a new song. I think that that adds more and more atmosphere. And one of the things I really love that I don't really we didn't know what quick travel was at the time. So I didn't think about this is that I love how the ocarina acts as a quick travel system, which yeah. I don't think I ever really appreciated as a kid because I love a good quick travel system. It's really quite easy in this game. Obnoxious quick travel systems are the worst. So that adds a lot to learning one of those songs and adding it to your repertoire, I think, is a pretty emotional and atmospheric moment. And just the I, I will say the other thing that I think is awesome about the atmosphere is the day night cycle. Yes, this is a revolutionary thing in a game like this. I mean, day night cycles existed in some other games. Castlevania Two, Simon's Quest famously had a day night cycle on NES, but we still weren't really dealing with them the way we deal with them now. They're like a given in open world now. Open worlds now. You, there's just n- nothing else to say about that. And that's awesome. But the night and day creates constantly dueling atmospheres of safety and then danger in all of the same places. And I love that. And I love how you can kind of feel that night's coming and you're moving and you're moving and you're moving. And then the gate kind of just goes up and it's not a big deal because you play the song a time and you get back into the castle and it's no big deal. But I love how that adds not Majora's Mask sense of urgency, of course, but some sort of sense of urgency of trying to get out of Dodge and make it easier for yourself and and I really dig that. And I think my one favorite atmospheric moment of all, did you get the uh, fire arrows by chance? No, I didn't. So there's a side quest you can do. It's very simple. It's at Lake Hylia, I think. Yeah. And there's like a, there's a, some sort of like, I don't know, plaque on the ground. And it says like, at the right time, aim your arrow, blah, blah, blah. It's like some little poem. And what you do is you just wait for the sun. You're at night and you just hold your bow back and you just wait as the sun and the moon goes over the sky and then the sun starts to peak up in between these two pillars and you shoot an arrow at it at the right time and the fire arrows spawn and you go and swim across to this platform and get them. And that is so dope. I mean, and I know it looks so much better on switch with the smoothing and all of that, but it was, it's so beautiful still the color palettes. And I love how they, they bring more and more color into the game towards the end. You're dealing with like full on rainbows of colors, which I think is cool too. So it kind of, affects the atmosphere in that way as well as you're as you're succeeding so what do you make make of the atmosphere generally i'm I'm especially interested in what you think about the day night cycle and how that might add to it yeah the day night cycle is awesome because you have i love what you said about the same place being sort of pedestrian and safe and then that same you could be standing on that same piece of ground that it becomes the most hazardous place you could possibly be you know as soon as the sun sets but i love you know the look and the feel and the realism of the rising sun or the look of dusk. And, uh, you know, again, I just think of a game that's nearly 25 years old, and I'm like, wow, this still really holds up, even though obviously it's so graphically primitive to what we have now. It's still so beautifully done, and it still holds up. I mean, it really still carries. And just the atmosphere of everything, that the fact that it's so dynamic in in spite you know not in spite of but it's so dynamic in terms of terrain you have everything it does it's really well to give it give you a nice mix and a nice variety with desert and lakes and plains and mountains and lava and ice and graveyards and all you know the, the various weather and the rain and making it feel like it's a real place where somebody's really spending time and having an adventure and the fact it could go from something really upbeat to like the market in a, a in a given daytime and you're sort of 
commiserating with the local people and buying stuff and selling stuff and having conversations. And then you could be in the graveyard where it's an eerie place to be and a dangerous place to be. And the music sort of hints at that and everything like that, which is really cool. And of course, the end of the game, you know, Ganon's castle and Ganon's towers just really, it really immerses you in a place that feels dangerous. And just having that ride and that rhythm of places that feel upbeat with the music and you're riding a Pona and everything seems fine. And it's a, it's a positive, hopeful time of your adventure. And then things get bleak and things get dark and the music complements that. And maybe you're running across a particular new baddie that you're trying to figure out how to beat. And so, you know, and it, it just feels like a, a real adventure would be with those hopeful times, with the harder times of, you know, trying to, trying to surmount a new obstacle. And it's just, you know, it was just such a great ride from the beginning to the end. And then also kind of being that time travel mechanic too, or going back and forth between having to be a kid and having to be an adult and harnessing your different powers at different times, depending on, you know, just to be able to keep going and push on in your quest was really cool. I mean, that was just really, really fun. It never really got, Again, like even though you're on this 30 hour quest, it never got monotonous and never got tired. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I played it for even longer than you did. And because it, it required that for me to get all the, the things I got. By the way, how completely did you play it? Did you get how many? Heart I tried to. Yeah, I try. I try. I have my little guide here, my official strategy guide. But I what nice. I ended up doing with this was I ended up kind of going back to old school Dagon and not really having any help. I would read this in my off hours, just, you know, reading while I'm having a sandwich or a cup of coffee or something. But I never really, with the exception of one or two times, never really consulted it while I was playing. So I kind of, you know, just wanted to do it the old fashioned way. And then I wanted to get enough stuff in order. Again, this game is a masterwork of getting, of sort of continuing by proxy of what you get like making the world open up by just obtaining one item or one ability and just keep doing that i mean no one does that better than nintendo and nothing does that better than a than a good zelda game but i found that the only real aggravating thing that i got tired of was the golden sculptures you know in fun and so i didn't i probably finished the game with 15 hard is that how you say it's sculptula i don't think i ever knew that i always called them sculptula Oh, I don't know. You could You're be probably saying right. right I don't think I ever realized that. Sculptula. Could be. Could Sculptula. Be. I don't Skultula. know if I ever heard anyone say it. Me neither. I'm trying to think. Sculptula. Tarantula. Right. Oh, you're right. I didn't. So you're probably right. Tarantula. Sculptula. I was but those things because to get in order to get God those, forbid, there's get no fucking the, voice acting in Zelda now even. So God forbid anyone's gonna. You're never tell gonna you how to say this shit. No. <laughs> you gotta hear like. It's true. Listen, you that's like all you get. That's all you get. <laughs> and who? You know, like some weird. That was fucking. That was. That's not like Tim Allen. I don't even know what that was. Who? No, that was. <laughs> but didn't that get the only reason to get those Sculptula tokens was to get that you gathered enough of those. They went towards heart pieces, right? No, you go. You get it. Um, for every 10 you get, you go to the house of Sculptula. Skull, oh, that's right. That's right. That's and then what you it was. get, so one of them is a heart piece, I think. But the ultimate thing you get, I think, is the infinite or like the gold ruby or whatever, rupee or whatever at the, at the end, which I, I got oh, right before. Oh, so you could, ca- right. Okay. So that's what it I was. I don't know so if it's, it's permanent or you just get a ton of money, but yeah. So that that's the only reason. It's just a collectible for, but I got them all. Everyone oh, you did? 
Yeah, all one hundred. That's hard. Yeah, that I used a guide. Really I didn't do it naturally. Tough. I used a guide. I mean, that's that's my thing with these kinds of games. I must admit is that I'm just not a puzzle person. So I get to a to the you know the water dungeon or something like that. And um, actually, did someone write in about that? How'd you Where find is... the puzzles in this game? You find those? Yeah, up? well, Mac Daddy X Four wrote in about this. Said, "Hi guys, okay. my library had the strategy guide for some reason, so I checked that out a few times while I played through this game for the first time." Thanks to the random curator that put that into circulation. This game may have been my introduction to 3D water levels and how frustrating they can be. How do you guys feel about the infamous water temple in this game and others scattered throughout the games of this time period? Thank you for writing in Mac Daddy. So I'm just not a natural puzzle solver at all. I just don't. My mind just shuts down. It's like, oh, I don't want to do this. Why am I playing this game where I have to do a task like this? I don't want to do this which is funny because i do all sorts of other menial and meaningless thing meaning i'll do i'll do a turn-based role-playing game all day which is like the most menial thing to most people but i love it so it to each his own but i i bring that up because the water dungeon didn't pose much of a challenge to me because i just used a walkthrough i'm like i'm not going into this thing and figuring this thing out there's just right. no way i'm doing that like I, I because that i know myself well enough and i knew myself well enough at the time because i bought the strategy guide i used to buy strategy guides all the time i love them I think that might be the strategy guide you have. Um, if not, it's in my box um, of guides here. But I always bought them. Wild Arms, I bought the guide. Final Fantasy VII, I bought the guide. I remember All these that. Games. I and remember that. Wild Arms was fucking hard. There's a lot of hard stuff. They had that cool mat. Oh, I loved it. It was great. I sold it later. But so many things. <laughs> but for me, I know that. I know Link to the Past well enough and the original Zelda well enough where I don't really need a strategy guide to just do what I need to do. But I don't know this game nearly well enough to not play it with a strategy guide. And I love Majora's Mask having played that game the first time through page by page with a strategy guide because I knew that I just don't. I don't enjoy beating my head against the wall. And I don't mean that as an insult to people that like puzzle solving. I know that you enjoy it. But to me, that's what it feels like like what do you have to do here the sun has to hit this block and you need to go talk to the dude who tells you this cryptic thing and then you got i'm like i'm not doing this dude like so just tell me how to get through the dungeon and i'll get to what i like about the game which is the play which is i still feel like i'm exploring and seeing things i'm just kind of not figuring it out as i go along which i think is is weird to some people but for me it's like i would have never got as a kid I would have been like, I'm done with this game. If, if I didn't have a strategy guide and I knew myself well enough, I'd be like, there's no way I'm playing this game straight up. So I have to know myself well enough to, to be able to do that. So I wonder where you come down with the, the difficulty of the game and playing through it and how you did with or without the strategy guide. Yeah, I always wonder about this with like nine or 10 year old kids or even younger when the advent of the cryptic game or problem solving or puzzles kind of kicked off in 86 with the first Zelda game, right? I mean, you could say it went earlier than that with games like Adventure for Atari, but really when it became a thing with Metroid and Kid Icarus and Zelda and the NES hard and all this kind of stuff. Because, yeah, for me, I will say, I'll admit, I'm not always down for a Zelda game with the problem solving and the puzzles and stuff like that. I have to know myself. I have to know my mood. Sometimes I just want to pop in Street Fighter. Sometimes I want to play Shredder's Revenge or just play an action game or Life Force or, you know, a shooter. But when I'm down, when I'm feeling savvy and I'm in the mood, I'll, I'll put it in. And I enjoy the problem solving and puzzles and doing it on my own because it it feels, I guess, most of the time, hopefully, rewarding and satisfying enough when you figure it out. And I like 
tying in the problem solving and the puzzles. We've talked about this with a lot of games that we've done on the show with the other thing, with the platforming, with the combat, with the grinding, with the buying and selling and strategically dealing with your inventory and all that kind of stuff. I like the problem solving and the puzzles as a part of that variety and the overall gameplay experience. So I don't mind it. But if I if I'm not down for that one night or I'm feeling a little too exhausted and I know I'm heading into a dungeon, I just I'll skip it. You know what I mean? Like because I'm not going to enjoy it. And then you're doing it because it's the job. You know what I mean? So, and you want to enjoy something, an experience like this. Because who the hell? Know? There's so many games to play, right? That's brass tacks in this whole conversation. There's so many things to play nowadays, between retro, modern, the various consoles, everything. So, who knows? I'm going back to Ocarina. So you got to enjoy it this time through. And I see it as part of the. I expect it as part of the Zelda experience. So, I'm usually down for it, and, it, and it's usually a proper payoff. I didn't. This game, I think, does a really wonderful job. Again, I don't know if you're nine years old, how it's going to work out for you. But for me, for a grown man and visiting this game for the first time, I found the puzzles to be challenging enough to be interesting and to be a proper payoff when you solve them. And I'm always working towards the boss fights, which I also thought were very rewarding in this game. And they were proper moments to work towards and you know really a wonderful part of the experience and part of the payoff but i really found them to be not aggravating enough to throw down the controller and shut off the system or shut off the emulator you know i found them enough to be enticing but not to be restrictive and and not to take away the enjoyment and again that's something that i don't take for granted i know you don't call i mean you're developing games now so you know this better than anybody you know, walking that fine line between cha- presenting a challenge for the gamer and maybe in that sort of in introducing replay value, right? Or making something way too aggravating and just w- which I'm sure you especially and you you guys who are notorious avid gamers, you could think of things like that where it's like this is too hard, this is unenjoyable. But I think Zelda, like any good Zelda game, this kind of walks that razor's edge and does an expert job of it. And I'm in awe of it. I'm, I'm in awe of the design of this game and, and in terms especially of the gameplay experience. It's just, it never, it never sort of comes down from 100. It really doesn't. What did you think of um, Z-targeting and uh, specifically because Kevin R. Lord wrote in and said, hello, Z-targeting was created in this game and... It seems to me as a precursor to the targeting system used in Souls-like and other action games to this day. Ocarina of Time gets many accolades, but do you think the battle mechanics of Z-targeting should be more heavily recognized for their influence? I am curious how you felt about playing the game, because one of the interesting things about this game as contrasting with Mario 64, which was concurrently developed but released a couple of years earlier, is that you actually have more control over the camera in Mario 64 than you do in this game. You can't freely swing the camera as easily in this game as you would be able to with like the Lakitu kind right. of idea in Mario 64. Right. And so Z-targeting became, a. It, it's funny because it became, um, at least playing it on the Switch controller, like I constantly was hitting Z just to refocus the, the camera in front of me with that because you can't twist the camera. You can't play with that second stick. And it's a different way of playing. That's why I feel like it feels good on the N64 controller, which is so peculiar. But that bringing your hand to the middle and using that feathering the stick like you would on an N64 controller is perfect for this game. And they figured out the solution to it. Uh, I I think the Z targeting is influential because it's clearly how Nintendo 
helped pioneer this idea that you first of all, you can't control the camera. So think about Dark Souls or Elden Ring. You can control the camera freely and you can still Z target. So you're getting like twice the help in this game. You really had to like I was clicking the Z button constantly trying to find someone, you know, a bat or something to shoot. So it really is a unique solution to a game that needed an aiming solution. The game would be completely unplayable without this mechanic. So what do you make of that kind of revolution in in overcoming a problem in 3D, which is to say we don't have a camera control button. So you need to be able to to aim at the character by locking into it, which is uh, I remember being very intimidated by when I was a kid. But once you get it, it works. It was just such a new way to play for us. Yeah, that must have been pretty dynamic back then. I got used to it really quickly and I struggle with the the N64 controller. I always I've always not liked it, even in playing the 20 games or so I did for Pat's book for the N64 book. Um, and I, I notoriously, you know, choose bad games and sort of um, random and obscure games. I just enjoy that for some reason. But so I, I certainly didn't play anything this good for the guidebook. But I really liked it, and I, th- I did think it was essential to lock on to what you want to see, especially in combat or what you want to do battle with. And then like you, Kyle, I was using it just in order to kind of re, you know, reinstitute myself or to sort of regain my camera and see, and just to look around, basically, sometimes. I got used to it very quickly. I was intimidated by it at first, and I felt the same way about mapping your items to the three C buttons. I really enjoyed it and i think by the time i got through the first boss fight i was pretty acclimated which kind of surprised me because i notoriously struggle with this controller i have it here this is the um the usb one a little less substantial and lighter than the actual one but still still not bad weird controller i don't know what it's so strange it is it was it was very i didn't know i remember getting it playing getting my n64 not really understanding how to hold it it's weird because you hold it asymmetrically. I don't think there's any other controller that really works like that. Except yeah, for maybe the for Atari 2600 hands. controller if you held the held it. Right. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah, it was really I mean, this was a departure. It really was back then 25 years ago. But you know what I mean? Um I I really didn't mind. It's probably the first time I really didn't there were random games like Rat Attack and stuff like that that I played that were action games or puzzle games that were Bomberman 64 was okay with this controller but this was the this was a really nice use of the controller i mean probably two or three hours in i forgot i was even using an n64 controller which is saying a lot for me because i'm tied to my old dog bone controller still you know totally man i i I do know i totally understand what you mean well let's stick with combat and get into enemies reginald wrote in and said hello moriarty bros what are some of your favorite enemies in the game mine has to be that damn owl after i accidentally hit the a button too fast causing him to repeat himself (laughs) <laughs> Thank you both for the content and have a great day. Thank you, Reginald, for writing nice. in. So let's well start done. with basic enemies first and then we'll get into the bosses because I think okay. there's some bosses worth noting as well. I'm curious what you make of any of the enemies and if you if any of them stick out. Here's what I definitely didn't appreciate when I was a kid. Okay. As much as I appreciate now is how much of a really clever evolution so many of these characters are from what we know about them in the flat 2D games. Like, I don't think I made the connection and it's like, oh, that Armos is the same Armos that in the original Zelda, you know, the keys are the same keys from the original Zelda and the Stalfos and even the 
obnoxious ass wall masters that bring you back to the beginning of the <laughs> yeah dude. the dungeons the same thing so while there are a bunch of new enemies like the babas and and all of the rest there's so many that come from the old games and i just i knew it internally like even the i think i realized it the most when i was at lake hylia and the the tech tights were on the water and i was like jesus christ i don't know why i didn't make this connection when i was a kid how literal this is of a translation so i'm curious if any of the enemies stick out to you and um if so which ones and what do you think about their designs and they're kind of you know the 3d it's very crude 3d renditions of these games with very limited color pal palettes very low polygon counts i mean wild arms is compressed intro is probably bigger on its disc than this entire game yeah so they had you know so they really didn't have very much to work with. And some of them, I'm looking at some of the sprites now, like the the scrub, the mad scrub, the one that comes out from under the red leaves. Some of them are really, really beautiful. The uh, Bemos is really beautiful as well. Some of them don't look great. What do you think about some of the enemies in the game, Dick? Yeah, I like the scrubs. The scrubs are really cool. The, the, the Gerudo guards are really cool. But that's what I was saying earlier. Like, it, I love the way this game is sort of just an extension of the first Zelda game. It's again, it's like looking at it from a different view. It's not top down anymore. You have this 3D presentation now, however low poly and simplistic. But I like the fact that you still have the Gibdo. And you like you said, you still have the 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 scrubs and you have who else was in there that was super cool i have this little list in front of me and you're just seeing him from a different view that dude that sort of throws the rock projectiles at you from the river Mm -hmm. right it's just seeing him from a different view now and you have the tektites and you have the moblins and you have who else was in the, the the dongo and it's just seeing them it's like seeing them now in a present day sense rather than seeing him in a 1986 sense and they didn't have to do that they didn't have to continue we're still pretty early on in zelda ip and franchise so it's like they could have taken departures or left mm-hmm. turns and stuff like that Certainly. but instead they really tried to make this immersive world and and build some sort of continuation and some sort of continuity and consistency and it's uh, that was part of the fun for me and the charm was recognizing that, you know, and I don't know if I would have recognized that as a 14 year old, but certainly as someone who's experienced Zelda so much through decades now, you could see that. And so in a way, it almost benefits me waiting that long to play the game because, you know, you realize like, wow, they were just doing, they were sort of telling you that this was the same world. You're just seeing it in a different way now. And that's fun. Definitely. And I, I got to give a shout out to the Redead and the, the Gibdo mummy creatures the scariest shit when they stop you when they see you but then the mummy jumps on your back and Super shit it's like, eerie yeah it's really it's a creepy creepy, man. creepy sort of thing what about um bosses dig i'm curious if you if any bosses stick out to you for me i really really dig two in particular the first is bongo bongo i think that boss is awesome so it's good. the um you have to use he the fairy my mind that boss yeah it's awesome yeah when he's playing the, the ground and then i love the painting of phantom ganon when he's going in and out of the paintings which i think is a reference to mario 64 i think it's pretty obvious but i didn't think of that yeah you're so i I was curious what what bosses of the i don't know i'm I'm looking at a list here maybe there are i don't know 15 or so they're so fun i mean they were proper events to make it to and the way they have their little subtitled uh you know like the dongo infernal dinosaur king dongo it's so japanese to give them like a title dude that's what i did i i don't i don't know if people realize like i did that in Har- haroxia too with the bosses like each boss oh. has 
when you, when it's introduced, it's like its name, and then it says like you know subterranean, you know subterranean archive. Dude, or that's so fucking I, cool that you did that. Yeah, I gotta find a screenshot. I'll send it to you in the chat. It's but go direct ahead. nod. Yep, I'm totally. That's so. No one's, it's, no it's one's ever said anything new about it. But yep, that is the uh, with the text the on screen. Really, nobody said that. Nobody caught that. I don't think so. No, that's that so seen. funny. And you know the look of the of the bosses, the scale, and the combat. How you had to fight them. I would definitely say that Phantom Ganon one blew me away. Amazing with the painting, that whole that whole um, idea. And then Volvagia, the lava dragon, the Bongo Bongo, just the scale of that boss with his giant hands and moving like around on the platform, bouncing them up and down. And then the Twin Rova, the kind of two, the two witches. Yeah, um, those that you are cool. had to use to reflect. You had you yep. had to reflect the fire spell to kill the ice one, and you had to reflect the ice spell to kill the fire witch. And then the way they would merge, dude, it was so inventive. And the way they would laugh, the bosses would laugh at you and sort of goad you on and taunt you. It they were really proper events, and you know I love a good boss fight, but th- this was really something that i would look forward to getting through the dungeon and solving the puzzles and dealing with a little bit of that aggravation in order to get to the bosses you don't even care after a while it i got gets to the point and i would include the last gan the last two ganon fights in this conversation too it gets to the point where you're enjoying it so much you're just enjoying being in that space and the music and the patterns and everything like that and just the combat in general that you don't want it to end it's like, wow, this is really fun. I hope they take 10 more hits because I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, totally. Type of thing. Yeah, super uh, fun. Uh, and you know what? Can I also say, Kyle, real quick? Please, that there's please. a real close, for me, I saw a lot of Studio Ghibli slash Miyazaki in this game. Some designs of the bosses, especially. I think, you know, sort of those supernatural, amorphic, shapeless type bosses like the... the um, Baronade was really cool, and the Morpha, the Amoebic Morpha. Yeah, that boss. was cool. Where you had to like so you had to hook shot the thing out of its out of the center of it or whatever. Yeah, so so fun. I mean, just really great ideas. And again, Definitely. like the problem solving, just a little bit of problem solving, not too heavy, not too much, but just had to figure it out before you did it, and then you feel you end up feeling great about yourself. I love it. It just really has that old school resonance for me. You know, it's just I, I just think this is the way games should be made. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. Dig, by the way, uh, click on the link I put here in the chat if you see it. Oh, you have it. I got it right here. Yeah. Put it. Click it. Click on it. And then uh, just scroll down to the first screenshot and you'll see what I'm talking about. Dude, this is so <laughs> So that's why we did that. You know, it was like because I love How that. How freaking cool yeah. is this? Yeah, that's a direct. No, nah, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Holy so, shit. There you That's go. That's so cool. You'll love Herboxia, dude. I think that'll probably be your favorite. Herboxia 2 specifically will probably be your favorite. I got to go games. back to that. I mean, I'm enjoying Super Perils of Baking. So is Graydon. Thank you. I'm glad to that hear that. That game is so fun. That game blew my mind. I knew it was going to be good, but I didn't know it was going to be that good. Like, it feels like a proper 8 bit slash, you know, meets 16 bit game. I mean, it really does. It just, it's amazing. Agreed. All right. I want to stick with, um, I guess the game being in 3D, we're talking about a lot about design and all the rest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Colin Sparling wrote in and said, hey, Ambrose, even though Yo. I spent some time with the N64 version, I beat the game via the version included in the Legend of Zelda collector's edition for the GameCube. I have that, too. It oh. should be in your in your collection. I should be two of them, actually, because I got two. what's in that. What games are included in that? That was Zelda one, Zelda two, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on. GameCube. Oh, wow. Cool. All on one disc. 
Oh, shit. I got it from Nintendo Power, I want to say. That's Okay. Yes, I had a Nintendo Power subscription in college. I distinctly remember dropping the game after my save file got corrupted just after I pulled the Master Sword from the pedestal. I eventually came back and beat it much later, and I'm glad I did. It was the first game that I played that captured the sense of adventure, which has been a pillar in what I enjoy about games so much. How well do you think that sense of adventure translated from 2D to 3D, if Mm. at all? I wonder what you think about the the sacrifice that's necessary to reduce the way a character reads in this very early primitive polygonal world such that in my opinion you get much more life out of the old man giving you the sword in the original zelda than you do from any character in ocarina of time just by the way that they look it's just they look bizarre in fact brian henninger wrote in i'll I'll bring this in now he says hello brothers of time when playing the game for the first time how did you feel about the first time you encountered a great fairy my wife hardly watches me play any video games, but early in our marriage, she walked right in during one of those encounters and asked me why I was talking to a giant prostitute. She still brings <laughs> it up to this day, decades later, so it must have impacted her. Pretty racy. The characters are goofy. Like, it, I think about how good, especially Link to the Past looks, and how good the character models in that look on these very limited palettes and this this very primitive way of doing art, but it reads better. I think that though the translation to 3D is successful from a gameplay and from an emotional standpoint, I think much more successful than Mario 64 in some sense. I still don't think that Mario, that it wasn't, it wasn't until Sunshine and definitively Galaxy that I think 3D Mario became more fun than 2D Mario. I think that Ocarina of Time is maybe as fun as a, a regular Zelda game, but it just doesn't look as good. And they don't really, I, dare I say, it's not until maybe even skyward sword if you want to kind of push it that they actually got this right where people don't look so bizarre so i'm curious how you feel that translation to 3d works in terms of the because you're a designer and an animator i mean how, did, how does it all look they, they apparently use motion capture which is hysterical oh that when I you look know. at it like generic no motion idea. capture you know but yeah they did and Holy he's shit. actually he's actually in i looked it up after it's in the credits uh they and um so i, I went and looked that up and wow. to get some of the animations, which is funny. And the animations, I think, are really cute. They're go- often goofy and people are moving around really whimsically. Yeah. I think about that more in Majora's Mask because you're always Majora's Mask's time is constantly going. You have to sometimes wait for things to happen, like wait for a certain time on the second day and a guy will run past you and you have to like chase him or whatever. And I just I always think about those like funny animations <laughs> they get in Zelda games. But there's a comedy to it that I, I think is intentional, but there's a a roughness to it still in this era you know you're you're sacrificing texture you're sacrificing depth and pre-render and all that kind of stuff and there are a lot of graphical tricks in this game i don't think i realized and i probably because i didn't know what i was looking for i don't think i realized how much 2d shit is in this game like there's a lot of 2d stuff in this game like the bridges are flat 2d the rivers and water are just 2d white layers over each other the leaves that fall out of grass are just flat pixelated sprites. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting tricks here where it's like kind of melding both worlds, but they do it pretty well, but I'm still not super compelled by it. What do you think about it aesthetically? Well, you know, you harken back to NES 8-bit graphics, right? Take the first Legend of Zelda game. There's a charm and a simplicity to it, but it is also so bare and so simple that it leaves something to the imagination. That, you know, take the sword dude is the first guy you encounter in the first Zelda game. 
you know, he's sort of not threatening, but then you hit him with your sword and he throws fireballs at you, and it's the most threatening, scary thing in the world when you're a kid, even though it's just this little chibi 8-bit sprite or whatever that doesn't even move. It's just a bitmap. I think it's funny. I have mixed feelings. I have mixed emotions about Ocarina of Time with the graphics. I like the way it kind of ushers in what I call the long nose style in Zelda, which was an illustrative style by the various illustrators that worked for Nintendo doing the comics and doing the game booklets and the box art and all that kind of thing, promotional art. And But this is the first time we're seeing a 3D representation of that. It's a little bit off-putting, but it's also kind of fascinating, and it's very distinctive. It's a very distinctive aesthetic that I think is kind of, which I think is kind of haunting in a way. And I kind of like it. I, even the way Link looks, like adult Link looks with his long nose and stuff like that. It's something that harkens back to old European art, or maybe old fairy tale art. You think Hans Christian Andersen mm. storybooks or something, which is kind of a neat merging of worlds, fa- old fantasy art. And then, but I think, I, I can't think, for me now it feels nostalgic. I'm not sure I would have been that positive about it in 1998 had I been paying close attention to it. But, you know, this is this is Nintendo stepping into the world of 3D art and 3D game presentation for, you know, they were new to it. You know, they had Mario, they had a couple other things, they had Zelda. And the other companies were following suit. And... It's funny, when I look, a lot of it's not even modeling. It's so low poly that the facial features and the clothing and stuff are mapped on. And, you know, it's really primitive texture mapping and surface mapping. But I think that's what gives it the charm. You're not going to see... I think what's going to end up happening, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, because maybe this has already happened. I think this look is next in line for the indie game companies to emulate for their new games. Right. Like this that is was always that was Yacht Club originally had said that that's what they kind of wanted to do with Shovel Knight back in the day. You Dude, know, they're doing amazing. whatever it's called Mirror the Wanderer or whatever, which looks awesome, but which is Game Boy. But yeah, that's what they had wanted to do is like some real low poly, I think, version of Shovel Knight, or at least that was the intention, like Shovel that's Knight 64 amazing. kind of stuff. You know, that's awesome. I would love that. And I think, you know, I think basically, you know, this is probably pretty close in time to getting that treatment where, you know, the dudes that grew up loving this as 10 year olds they're old enough to make games now they're going to be you know they're going to be revisiting this as something that's just highly nostalgic but for me I, I didn't really mind it and again it's sort of that cheesiness in the visual approach and in the animation as well and the movement was superseded by just again the storytelling whether that was just the way they focused the camera or, you know, told a character story or the use of music. And again, I think they, they use sound effects really expertly in this as well. So just the overall presentation just sort of lifted it to the next level and got got me through that cheese pretty quick where I wasn't even really paying attention to it anymore. And, you know, maybe I was being a little too warm and fuzzy and a little too nostalgic, but that's how it that's how it played out for me with this one. I want to um go on and talk a little bit about the soundtrack and music we've we've gone along enough awesome 055 wrote in and said hey dnc yo can you talk about how awesome the music is in ocarina of time my favorite of the lost woods and the song of storms without the iconic music i don't think ocarina of time would have been as memorable i also think it's interesting that the overworld theme from link to the past was not in the game came back for majora's mask of course yes that was a big deal 
And I feel like they there was like some plot reason why I think they put it in Majora's Mask 2. I'm not entirely sure I remember, but it's some weird thing in Termina trying to like harken back to that familiarity or that parallel stuff. But we'll get to Majora's Mask eventually. We'll do that another time. Oh, I can't wait. The thing about the soundtrack is that it's not only awesome, dude, the, the Gerudo theme like the valley you know that theme song like that the guitar is it's absolutely insane oh, i mean it's it, so good the i also love the music kind of the the, the drums and the, the vibe of the the um zora's domain music really soft i often listen to podcasts when i play games especially like this or i listen to even other music and then i just tune out the music and then when it's like someone's talking or something happens i take them out and, but and so i started playing like that but then i just ended up playing the game straight up and i played it for i don't know 40 plus hours so I love the music in the game. The soundtrack is just, I mean, what's his, what's Kenji Kondo? Isn't that who his name is? Yeah. What is yeah, name? Koji Kondo. Koji Kondo. That guy is no joke. And oh, man. I will say that I love the, the musical nature of the gameplay. I love the idea that you have this, this, this flute and you play different songs and you get to play the songs. I like, I think sometimes I don't like when games let you do things. I'm like, all right, you don't need to let me do that. Like just there's a selection to do that, but I like how they're like, no, take it out and you remember the song. You can go look it up if you want, but hopefully you've written it down or memorized them. And then you do, you memorize the song of the sun. You memorize opponent's song. You memorize all these things. I really dig it. I love the audio. I love the audio aspect of this game. It's just pure Miyamoto. And this, this fascination he has with whimsy. It's something that no one else would think about. I don't know. I, I I look at this game. I think I was seeing that the you know Hausers were saying a lot about how how seminal this game. Impor- I keep saying that word. How important the game was to them, and you can just see like everything kind of starts here. And this idea of making music central to your game is not necessarily new, but it's pretty pretty new at this point. I mean, music was just an afterthought. If a game had great music in the 8-bit and 16-bit era, it was notable. And then there were studios and publishers that were series that were known for having good music. But think about all the Mega Mans and Castlevanias and then think about all the trash. So sure. to have these, this game that's so focused on the soundtrack, to have it more orchestral, it can be in stereo. It can be in mono too, depending on how you're playing it. A lot of people probably did play in mono at the time. But I'm curious, what, what did you make of the soundtrack and what do you make of, of kind of tying it into the game so intimately? I, I, I really love that you have to do that to, to time travel. You have to do that to call opponent. You have to do that to go to the dungeons, all the rest. It's so cool, dude. I mean, to make the music and the music composition just as important and put it on a pedestal just as high as the graphics or the gameplay. And you know they do that. You know Miyamoto does that. And Koji Kondo is a integral part of this of the experience that we get from the game and the way the music could veer from haunting and eerie and foreboding to upbeat and jaunty like you said whimsical and happy and you know i love that the 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 music could really play into your emotion of being a little afraid of being a little intrepid or you know being you know being courageous and you know really going from bringing you on those emotional lows and highs you know you're it's it's a you're upbeat and then you feel sad it gets a little melancholy and then those familiar stings that they use from the other zelda games even though the zelda the main zelda theme is missing and i think that speaks to the confidence of what they had with the music here i mean the zelda theme is you know iconic and to be able to just say ah we don't really need it in this game Totally. And the music still holds up so well. Totally. That's 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 a boss move, you know. 
and the, but those familiar things with the treasure chest or the discovery sting or you know to have that still have those Zelda ties in there and then of course like you said playing it in with the ocarina and having to play that music having to play those lullabies or those boleros or minuets or whatever type of thing and to have that sort of integrated into the just those eight notes you know to have that really stir up some sort of emotion in the player i mean that's that's the, again where it gets me so frustrated where this whole a video games art thing some of these some of these guys composing music for these games are some of the best musicians on the planet no doubt no doubt you know what i mean which is such a fr- you know which is so weird to to think otherwise to it me. is weird that video, it, it took the longest for audio to kind of shine through as something that is worth worth its weight in games i mean more than ever with 3d audio and these new headsets i mean i'm wearing my 3d headset right now for ps5 and yeah it is it is amazing i mean when i when i played horizon forbidden west with my headset i was like this is insanity like like not only the music but just the sound design and that's the, the thing the directional sound design and all that so we owe people like this that because I always I don't know why I think about this, but I always just think about a person playing because we played our games mostly in our rooms. But a lot of people played games in living rooms, right? Sure. Over time and expose their parents and their siblings and whatever grandparents. I, I just always wonder, like, what was it like for a 35 a, a year old mom in 1998 to walk through the living room and hear what sounds like classical music coming out of an N64 that you probably don't take very seriously. You don't really understand it. It's the Nintendo Right. But, but coming out of it is something. This is what I always try to tell our sister, Dana. She just doesn't get it. She just doesn't care. It's like you're not getting it like you're just from a writing standpoint, from a creativity standpoint, from an atmospheric standpoint. You're just not getting it. Like, I don't know why that is, but. And she loves books and movies and television. She loves pop culture. Right. It's like imagine Music. imagine getting that level of storytelling, but you can also play it. It's interactive. I don't I don't understand. It's just like some sometimes you just can't make people get it. But Dave, I wanted to ask you a couple more things. I have three closing questions as well that I want to ask. But before we get to those, sure, sure. I wanted to ask about your inventory and your upgrades and stuff. Was there anything mm. that stood out to you in the game as far as items you like to use? I, I have to give a shout out to the fairy slingshot, of course, in the beginning of the game. So but fun. the bombs, useful. Boomerang, useful. The magic beans, which I planted copiously all over the place to help me later on get some heart pieces and Did all the Did you rest. do that? Oh, yeah, definitely. The hook shot and the long shot essential for exploring the lens of truth, of course, and uh, all the rest. And um, the big question I want to ask you is, did you get the bigger on sword, the, the most powerful sword in the game? That I did do. Yeah, I did that as well. I love that side. I love doing the side quest where you have to like run between everyone and like, you know, this guy needs the frog and then the potions <laughs> expiring and all this. I love it. It's very cute. So fun. The eye drops. So talk to me about the uh, inventory and all the rest and what items and, and the rest stood out to you. Yeah, I love the inventory. I loved, you know, your your magical abilities, your items, your weapons. You had the different tunics, the different boots. There was enough to manage and sort of pay attention to. And of course, grinding for rupees and then at first the Deku nuts and then arrows and getting bigger bags and bigger quivers. Like there was a lot to do. There was enough to do to keep you busy, but not overwhelm you. And, you know, again, a game that just walks the line with with the gameplay and just makes it fun instead of burdensome, which is wonderful. I think I like, first of all, the way there's a there's different abilities and skill sets and weapon wielding between young Link and old Link. You know, you have the slingshot versus the bow and arrow. You have the boomerang versus the long shot and the hook shot. I think the hook shot and the long shot were probably my favorite just for how much of the game they open Mm -hmm. up and give you the option 
coupled with the Scarecrow song, especially. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, which is so, which was so fun and inventive. I love AA that. AA up, thing. up, AA up, up was my scarecrow. So. <laughs> it's so good. There's so much you could do with it. And again, every item opened up so much of the world, and Zelda's so good at doing that. It gives you one more thing, and it just opens up another 20% of the game. It's so wonderful. Such a great payoff and a great feeling. But the hook shot and the long shot for me were just. You know, the lens of truth was also very cool. That's something yeah, that surprised is. me, something that I don't remember seeing too often in a game, something that seemed unique. But yeah, dude, I had a great time managing the inventory and finding stuff. And, you know, another thing I should say, very surprising that the bigger on sword, because I was a little confused, like I have the master, you know, the master swords. What there's another sword and it's twice as powerful as the master sword. But the fact that you still need that second most powerful sword in the end right. was a little unique thing that I don't remember ever seeing before in a game that was really fun, like a fun little touch. Yeah, it is. And you would only know that if you got the big round sword, because otherwise, I mean, there's a there's a gap for it in the inventory that suggests it's there. Like my the only gap in my inventory was where the ice arrows go, which was annoying me. But I'm just like, I'm not I'm not going to invested it. enough. How that. many uh, how many of the hearts? How many of the gold sculptures and hearts did you end up getting? Do you the remember? gold sculptures? I lost count of. I don't know why they aggravated me so much. They were the only aggravating aspect in the entire game for me. I ended up beating the game with f- 16 heart containers. Nice. Of of the 20. Did you get all 20? Yeah, I got every I got them all. 15 yeah. or 16. I think it was 16. So you, that means you missed 16 heart pieces, right? Yeah, not yeah, too so, bad. No, not, that's about half, not right? Terrible. I think there are 30, 36, maybe something like that, but um, divided into four, of course. I was curious about that. And then I, I wanted to just ask you about the locales and the races and the dungeons. I mean, does anything stick out to you specifically about any of that stuff? I mean, we we're introduced, obviously, to a lot of these characters in earlier games, but we see the Goron and the Zora take on a more prominent role in Majora's Mask when you actually sure. can be them, which is cool. But I'm curious what you think about the the introduction of these various races, this kingdom. You have Kakariko Village, I think that's how you say it. You right. have Lake Hyla, you have Zora's Domain, you have Gerudo's Fortress in the desert. You have a few other places I'm sure I'm missing, Hyrule Castle, of course. Right. Any of these spots hang, uh, stand out to you? Any of these dungeons stand out to you? Any of these uh, the races you encounter, although they're not many, stand out to you? I love the fact that you could. This is the beginnings of that because you get a lot of that more in the contemporary games like Breath of the Wild. One thing I realized that I didn't, you know, in knowing now that there's different Zelda timelines and even different links, you know, that whole thing, it's confusing. But I like the way the sages in this game, in Zelda Two for the NES, the towns are named after some of these sages. Which is actually Rudo and um, what's the, some of the other one? Is there is Darunian one? Darunia one of them? Rudo? Yeah, uh, I have it here. Hold on a sec. It is. Uh, oops, sorry, I got to scroll. These ages: Ruru, Saria, Darunia, Rudo, Impa, Naburu, and Zelda. Right, right. Which is so cool to think, like you know, later on, Impa and Impa's eventually you see her young in this one, but she's an old lady eventually, right? In some of the timelines, so it's really cool to see the way they they sort of play with that, and I think. A lot of that just spawns from the fact that they want to do something fun and new every time. And then somebody's working behind the scenes at Nintendo in some little small cubicle just trying to tie it all together somehow. You know, it seems that, it seems that way. But who knows? We're not giving them enough credit. But uh, did you mess around with the masks at all 
in the game. Kind that of I didn't really get yeah. into. I only really familiarized myself from this guide here with that. It seemed like a lot of it was just in order to barter, right? So you could yeah, it was just a side quest them. where you were trading forward constantly to right. get like the next mask. I did a couple of them. I love the um. I think it's the Keaton mask because That's the first one, I want right? yeah I want to read about this like I feel like it's supposed to be Pikachu but I don't know if that's true or not yeah, it because, looks like it well it, it the, the timing doesn't quite add like line up I'm reading about it now because okay. they say like oh it's a popular kids thing right now or so they say something like that and I'm like right. it looks like Pikachu kind of but it's it it was in development when Pokemon was in development it doesn't really make any sense oh, that you would make that kind I of assumption okay so I don't know if that's true or not but yeah you eventually trade them uh, all down and uh, you end up getting you know whatever some item I think you have to trade in like oh you get the mask of truth right and then that's right. that goes on from there I think something like that and then you just get info basically after that right they give you I think they, so right they give you information it's it, they really take that mask mechanic obviously to the next level and skull kid of course is like who you meet in the game is the one of the main characters in the next game as well You'll play a big part later all right let me ask you these three final questions that I wanted to inquire about before we go. Sure. The first is uh, from Justin O'Reilly. He says, hey, guys, Yo. I got Ocarina of Time and an N64 for Christmas in 1998. And it's fair to say it's left an indelible mark on my little nine year old brain. I've never <laughs> seen a game so detailed and well realized. And this was the first time I had so fully, completely immersed myself in a video game world. I still play it somewhat regularly and still absolutely love it. Conversely, I have a younger friend who played it recently for the first time and disliked it due to its clunky controls and dated visuals. Well, I have to agree with my friend that it hasn't aged particularly well. It left me wondering how to reconcile that thought with the fact that this game was in its day a monumental achievement and its legacy, or should I say legend, is still felt in game design to this day. So should we judge games based on the context of when they were released? Or is it fair to expect that a beloved game may lose some of its clout as our expectations for games evolve? Is a 10 out of 10 in 1998 equal to a 10 out of 10 in 2022? This is a great question. This comes back to the subjectivity of art. When I was reading this and putting this together, Dig, you know what I thought of was Wizard of Oz, the movie. Sure. From the 30s. The Wizard of Oz is a really good movie still, I think, to this day, but really kind of pedestrian when you think about it. I mean, when you look at it, it's like, okay, I mean, it was almost 100 years ago. I mean, there's been a bajillion movies that do everything you do better than this. But what part of the charm of the movie is that it was done when no one was doing anything like that. No one right. thought to do anything like that. No one had the skill to do anything like that or could execute on it. And in fact, Wizard of Oz needed to exist for so many other movies to exist. So while it's touchstone status is, you know, well established, I don't know that anyone really considers the Wizard of Oz the greatest movie of all time. A hundred years after it was made. I don't know. I mean, I just don't. Maybe that's maybe that's wrong, but it's still important. It's still awesome. It's still a 10. And think about it at the time and think mm -hmm. about everything that's owed to that movie. That's how I feel about Ocarina of Time. I don't think that. It's like the greatest thing in the world. It's just a very good game. That's very important, vital to where games would go later. And so, yeah, we're 24 years removed from it. And we have to look at it through that lens. Is a 10 then a 10 now? I don't know. And this is why I don't like scores. But what I will say is that it holds up a whole lot better than most of the games from that generation, especially in the 3D space, especially mm. in the polygonal N64 space. It's a very messy era. 1995, 1996 to 2000, 2001. Pretty shit. I mean, it's a lot of for, for 3D games. I'm saying like a lot of primitive stuff. 
And I just think Ocarina of Time is one of those games that is exactly as it was back then. And you might have a lot to compare to it now, but it's because of it. Just like Wizard of Oz spawned so many movies by its techniques and its its daringness. So does that daring daring, I guess not ness. <laughs> does that too. um does that make sense to you and do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I'll pose this question as a counter. Should we judge it less harshly over the test of time? Yeah, right? maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's another thing way to look at it. I mean, for me, the barometer is this. I look at it and I'm a nostalgic guy, so you gotta kind of take this for what it's worth. But is it twenty-five years on? We're talking about Ocarina of Time this time, Ocarina of Time. Is it fun? Is it still fun? Does it strike a chord or chord with you still after all these years? Can it evoke emotions, be it joy or sadness or excitement or a combination of all those things? I'd say if it could still resonate like that, like it's resonated for me after missing this 24 years ago, I never even played it. And to visit it now, two and a half decades on and to elicit this much enjoyment out of it and also also an emotional experience and also just something that i think was so well crafted that it just it transcends the technology or the technological level of its time because i think it's just i think it was really ahead of obviously it was ahead of its time and i think that's a buffer you know like that just makes it live on and I think, you know, it's so funny when something is this critically acclaimed, it's really, I get dubious. That's my first thing. It's like, and it's, it's, that's a strange thing. I know I said it on the show before and I'm not inherently a pessimistic person or a negative guy at all, but for some reason, that's the way I'm struck by something like that. It's like, all right, popular belief is that this is the best thing in the world. Prove it. Like that's my, that's my stance. And this proves it. I was just like, what, you know, is it, this got a, you know, a hundred percent in Famitsu magazine, which didn't give any, you know, back in the day, which didn't give anything that score. I think it gave two games ever that like that kind of a score, those, that type of accolade. It's like, all right, I don't think it's going to be that good. I'm sure I'll enjoy it, but there's going to be plenty of problems. A lot of time has passed. It's not going to hold up this game for me, maybe even more so than anything we've talked about on knockback yet. And probably one of the older things we've talked about on Knockback too. This, yeah, is, pretty, often, this is getting yeah. pretty ancient. Yeah. So, so fun. So I would say if it still kind of holds up to those bullet lists after all these years and that it would still enjoy it. But you know what? I'm also an older gamer and I'm also a retro gamer. So I'm often immersed in these other decades with these other games and playing them like they're new. So I think for the younger generation, it's different. I just think it's different for them. And it's by no fault of their own. It's by no fault of our own, the old guys and gals. I just think it's really a, you're looking, we're looking at it through a different set of goggles. I think, you know, we're recording this at a unique time too, because we're about equidistant from the game being launched in 1998. And then that game in 1998 being distant from basically the origins of video games entirely. So it's like a midway point of this segue into a new space, this 3D space that was existing before Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, a bunch of other games, flight sure, simulators. Sure. But this was really a game that did it on console and did it the best first. And with Mario 64 as well, Metal Gear later and a few other games, seminal games. But it's certainly worth remembering, I think, for its influence. 
Ken Beiser wrote in with his second question here that I wanted to end with. He says, Brothers Moriarty, why on earth has Nintendo not remade this game Mm, or even made it so it can be bought on Switch? The online version is just a straight port of the N64 version and it isn't looking all that great. I think it looks pretty good. Will we ever get the upgraded version of this masterpiece we deserve? Thanks for all you do and keep that nostalgia coming. I don't think it's unheard of that they might remake this game, but it's because they remade Link's Awakening. Sure. Which is a smaller project. This would be a much bigger project. This would be a triple A hundred million dollar plus project. I don't know that you even want to risk it. Nintendo has this thing where they don't really go back very often to their games. They re-release them. They polish them up. This game was polished up for 3DS, for instance. But I don't know. Like, it seems a little bit against their mantra to go back and remake something. It's so obvious and it would sell 20 million copies probably and they'd make a goddamn fortune. But how do you feel about the idea of remaking Ocarina of Time? Yeah, I mean, I knew I know I knew this was coming. I know Lake's Awakening is a big part of this conversation. You're talking about making a Game Boy game from decades ago to something that's much more modern and a complete graphical overhaul. And I haven't played that game, but I will say that it looks extremely charming. I mean, give me that Fisher Price, little people, chibi graphic look all day. I'm a sucker for that person. I'm a complete mark for that whole aesthetic. And I'm looking forward to playing that game. But I think the thing with this game, I don't want to be that begrudging old man you know that old grouch that says don't remake a classic but and i could see them doing a good job and of course nintendo would helmet they're not gonna fuck it up i mean they're not really known to do that especially nintendo but i would think you risk really kind of taking away the charm of this thing you know, there's something charming about it now, this 1998 game that was probably, you know, I don't know for sure, but you, you would think this game began development sometime in the mid-90s, right? You think about that in a 2022 perspective, and you look at it through a 2022 lens of truth. <laughs> and Indeed. there's something really charming about it. You know, there's something, yes, it's there's something... Uh, nostalgic about it there's a definitely has its retro qualities but there's something charming in the way they had to pull it off back then with the texture mapped faces and the low polys and the awkward movements but there is something so expressive about it and a little bit and humorous and haunting and serious and overly dramatic and you know you have the whole thing that just kind of still makes it work for me and i'm sh- for colin for i'm sure a lot of people that play it today so i wonder if you're just when you when you go back to the drawing board and remakes a classic like this is it just remaking something you know what i mean is it just really in essence creating something brand new with what you could do today you know and then you're trying it's to me it's a lot oftentimes and i don't know if it, it's like this for every old school game but for this it would be like trying to squeeze that square block through the round hole it's just why you know like why just admit, i would rather than make a brand new zelda game and i know they're working on breath of the wild too which i'll believe when i see because i feel like this one's getting long in the tooth because it's 2017 breath of the wild right yeah february so five years march eh, i guess i guess it's not too bad but you know, I I don't I would rather see Nintendo put their resources into doing something else. We get so little from them, you know. Where's our new IP we've been talking about for the last five years? You know, they they're, they're definitely nice. capable. So I would rather see them do that. That gets into our last um, inquiry here from Mike Lee, Senator of Utah, who wrote in and said, "Hello, <laughs> this isn't Miyamoto, 
What do you make of Zelda's team's decision in finally retiring Ocarina's framework? Growing up, Ocarina and many of its subsequent entries established what I thought where Zelda games were. Tedious puzzles, linearity, and tutorials up the ass. Needless to say, they didn't appeal to me. It wasn't until I played A Link Between Worlds and especially Breath of the Wild that I finally understood what Zelda games were originally about, exploration. I understand Ocarina's uh, legacy, but I'm personally glad to see Nintendo move on from it. This I can't disagree with anymore. I know people love Breath of the Wild. I'm not going to go on and on about my problems with Breath of the Wild. What I will say is that Breath of the Wild comes at a cost. And the cost is that we don't get Zelda games. That Breath of the Wild is not a Zelda game. I don't care that it's called The Legend of Zelda. It's not a Zelda game. It's Skyrim. It's something else. And that's cool. But Zelda is destructible weapons. Zelda is cooking. Zelda is going to a hundred different dungeons. See, what I love about and what reminded me in, in, about and playing this, what I love about these games is that they're tailored. They're made to be experienced and consumed in some way they're he's saying they're linear, but not all the Zelda games are linear link to the past and link between worlds are not linear games. Like you can do things out of order in those games. And I just, and Majora's mask is, is inherently nonlinear just because you have to constantly sh- shift the days over and over again and just have to like kind of ride things out. That's part of what makes the game fun and urgent. But I feel like we could use a Zelda game like this. When I think about the potential of Zelda, I know people think about Breath of the Wild, too, but I think about an eight dungeon Zelda game. Yeah. Where it's like, make a game, like use your heads, your brilliance. Don't worry about open world, whatever. Make a game that is a Zelda game. Zelda in 86 was an open world game per se, but it's what, 16 by 16 or something it's not really a very screens it's not really a very big place with dungeons nestled underneath. right right that is zelda much more than breath of the wild will ever be zelda and so i wonder if you lament like i do the kind of the death of this like i micah disagrees with me because i said when we were talking about the game I'm like we're never going to get a game like this again like they're never going to make a zelda like this and she's like no they'll go back and make a zelda like this again and i'm like not in the triple a space like maybe some shitty B team stuff, but they're not going to do. They're not. They're not going to see how the Zelda game did on switch and then be like, now we're going to go back and give you a 25 hour game because you're all going to complain. But I would rather have that. You know, I, I feel like Breath of the Wild m- m- was missing tightness and intent and. Any reason for me to really feel like I wanted to play it, and I feel like Zelda is not Skyrim. I don't I don't walk out of, in Fallout three. I walk out into the wasteland from the from the uh, from the the underground shelters and I'm exploring and I don't know what the fuck's going on. That's fallout, but Fallout's right. not Zelda. And I don't know why we want it to be. So that's, that's my, my problem. And I wonder how you feel about that as we close up. Yeah. The, I would argue that after breath of the wild, it would have been an opportune moment to revisit Zelda and switch it up again. What I love about Nintendo, one of the things I love about Nintendo specifically with their core IP is that every time they revisit a game in the franchise, they go back to the drawing board and introduce something new and something unique. And they keep it, they keep Mario and Metroid and Zelda set in that world with those expected touches, but they bring something new to the table every time. It's very inventive, it's brilliant creative direction. And so they make it familiar. But they also make something new and they're very good at towing that line. And we talk about mass appeal and all that kind of stuff. They're brilliant at it. 
be- better than anybody in entertainment, I would argue, maybe. And so I think that we're getting to that moment now where maybe it'll be one game later than a lot of us, than Colin and I certainly would want. They return to the drawing board and say, okay, now we go back to a late 90s, early aughts model, Ocarina, Majora's, whatever, and not make the game like that, but maybe kind of build it around that kind of template, and then we introduce something new, whatever that is, whatever that thing is, big or small. That's almost what I would expect from them. What I wouldn't expect from them is to go... Breath of the Wild was a huge game. I don't, It doesn't surprise me that they're doing Breath of the Wild 2 and that they're going to make it very similar. And we don't really know the ins and outs of that yet. It would shock me if they do Breath of the Wild 3 because that's not Nintendo's formula. Returning to the well is not what they do. Like them or love them. Like them, hate them, love them, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, they don't, that's not, that's not what they do. And, you know, maybe think, you know, Miyamoto's getting older. The baton's going to be passed. I don't, you know, I'm sure his lieutenants are just as brilliant. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, who knows what the future looks like. But if it's going to stay consistent of what we've known, you know, from Nintendo for the last three decades, they're going to switch it up. And I almost think it's essential and expected that they do. And, you know, I also get your problems with Breath of the Wild. I I think there's something... I don't have as many problems as Colin has with it, but there's something lackluster there. There's a little magic missing. It's very hard for me to articulate. I don't exactly know. I know those things we could talk about and converse about broken weapons and those annoying touches, but there's something else. There's something a little bit just out of my reach to articulate. There's just something missing there that doesn't feel like Zelda of somebody who grew up from the first game onwards. And, um, It'll be interesting. I, I'm very interested in Breath of the Wild too because I'm um, very interested in what they bring back from BOW1 and I'm very interested in what they change. You know, Are they going to stick to their guns with the broken weapons thing, for instance? That's a biggie. I don't know. But I'm very, you know, you're always, they're so, they're so shadowy. You know what I mean? You just never yeah, they really know are. what they're going to, what they're going to they really listen are. to, what they're going to heed, what they're going to ignore, what they're going to say fuck you about, what they're going to embrace. Fascinating. And it's almost fascinating. Just the game, just that game coming out and knowing what it's going to be, whether you're going to play it or not, the, all of gaming is going to be paying attention to that. You know what I mean? Whether that's going to be in your Switch or not, you know? So... Certainly. You got to give them that, you know, definitely. I always give them their plaudits for sure. All right, my friend. Well, that's all I have for the legend of Zelda Ocarina of time. 1998's classic Nintendo 64 game also available on GameCube. We hmm, switch 3DS. I think that's it. Um, so lots of different ways to play it. You have mm-hmm. to get the subscription like the, the subscription plus thing or whatever to to to. Uh, Get it online plus or I don't know what the fuck they call it. It's like the, the boutique version of Nintendo Switch online. But I got it. It was $60 for the year. I think it's well worth it. It's actually pretty cool. I was saying to Micah, I think it's neat. Like it's a module where you download like the N64 module, for instance, from the store. And then it's preloaded with all of the games that are available. So you just play whatever you want. So it's pretty neat. That's I don't use really very useful. Often, so I love that. Yeah, it is. So thank you guys for voting for this. Sorry for the delay, but we're glad to deliver it. We owe you a few more games episodes, so we'll be getting those to you. They're coming. In the coming time as well. Dig, let's go to you as we close each and every episode of Knockback with a dad joke. All right, my friend. I thought I'd give our Twitter friends a break today and go with a Zelda dad joke. Please. Found online. There's actually a, quite a combo, like 75 of these 
in one sitting. So wow, next time we do a Zelda topic. Lots for you to copy. We can return to the web. <laughs> I'm not sure of the quality of these, but let's go. Kyle, I found a Zelda fanfic where Ganondorf took over Hyrule, but for some reason I couldn't click on it. I guess the link was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty bad. Not, not but I appreciate it nonetheless. I think that one's going to grow over time. I think the quality is going to increase the more you think about that one. Okay, good. Fair I'll enough. make that risk. I'll proffer that for, for your uh, enjoyment. Well, thanks, Dave, for taking the time to play the game. And thank you all out there again for your love, kindness, and support of all things knockback and last stand media patreon.com slash last stand media much appreciated leave us nice reviews on itunes if you'd like and subscribe on youtube if you prefer to watch most of you like to listen but some of you like to watch because you're perverts (laughs) we'll be back for more with uh i think we're gonna wrap up game of thrones do some movies and all the rest so uh stay with knockback much more coming until next time goodbye goodbye Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knox, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Reed, Benjamin Mumma, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez Espinoza, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen Rui, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parides, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Tronge, JT, Antonio C., Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Andrew Morgan, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex LaPierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Bustard, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, D.B. Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algorit, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda. Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Anton Kay, Alan Trembley, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, 
Joey Gondoliger, Jarrell Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Andrew, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Carper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice.